Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is November the 8th, 2013, and this is episode 1244 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. This is going to be a great show. Uh, over half of it will be expert counsel calls. I have calls and answers today from Darby Simpson, uh, for Stephen Harris, for Paul Wheaton, for Ben Falk, for Keith Snow. And I even have an honorary showing uh, of Evan Folds uh, from Progress Earth uh, on uh, some foliar questions that I just thought would be a great question for him, so I kicked it over to him. In fact, my goal has been to do an expert counsel call, uh, expert counsel show, where every single expert counsel member had a question and an answer. I asked you to help me. You guys, oh, Kerry Davis is on today, too. You guys did your job. There's only three people missing. I will name them. Their absence of name tells you who they are. Um, they did get questions, and to be fair, all three of these gentlemen are busy beyond belief, and none of them got an answer back to me this week, so they're not featured, but you guys did ask. So uh, you guys know who they are, and hopefully we'll get answers from them next week, and we can get their answers for you on the air. Uh, I want to point out, though, when I say this, I'm not picking on the guys that didn't get an answer back. It's a big deal. I want you guys to realize that these guys make a commitment uh, that they meet uh, by taking the time to answer these questions. And some of them go to a great deal of additional research to give you the answer that you're looking for when you make these calls. So I really appreciate the fact that uh, that all of these gentlemen uh, serve on our council. And if you want to make a uh, ask a question of one of our council members, this is the way you do it. And if you don't do it this way, uh, your odds of getting your question answered go down. So try paying attention and doing it the way I ask you, not because I'm being mean, but because this is the way that I find the calls and get you an answer, okay? So what you do is you call the Think Line, 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You leave your question. Your question should begin with... I am calling with a question for expert council member, fill in the blank. You should tell me that right off. That way, if you mess anything else up, I'm still likely to get your call out of screening eventually and get it off to the council member. My question is, boom, 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 whatever the question is, no details, just the question. Once you've said who it's for and asked the question, then you can give all the details that you want. If you do that, you're more likely to get through the screening process, even with a question for me. That is the formula. But the next and most important thing, as soon as you hang the phone up, pound out a little email to me. Jack, I just called an expert counsel call in for council member blah, whatever the guy's name is, from number, you know, XYD, PDQ, whatever your number is. Send me that. That will make it where I can go into my folder and find that call easily, and it'll be less likely to get buried because the call volume, if you don't do this, those council calls get buried, and because I'm trying to give these guys exposure, I give their calls priority. All right. When you call for me, same formula, except you don't have to send me an email. Call, hi, Jack, this is so-and-so. My question is XYZPDQ. The details are. That is how you get a question answered. There is one of you that calls in about twice a week, who has never done that. 
And that one person will talk for two minutes before I know what their question is. Fortunately for you, sir, somebody else asked actually one of your questions this week, so you're going to get an answer without actually me playing your call. I don't mean to pick on folks, but honestly, I cannot play a listener's question if it goes on for two minutes or more and the questioner point has not been made. I'm trying to help you guys. 866-65-THINK is the number, and it's not a live call, so don't think you're going to hear me. When you pick up the phone, you'll get a voicemail. Follow the formula. We'll try to get you on. Before I bring your calls on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. If you're looking to learn how to make knives, go to KnifeKits.com. If you already know how to make knives and want material, go to KnifeKits.com. If you're thinking about it and not sure it's something you can do, go to KnifeKits.com. If you want to be involved in the knife making or customization process on any level, the best source I have ever seen in my life is KnifeKits.com. And if you want to get into making Kydex, uh, you can learn to do that too as well. So maybe you're not going to be a knife maker, but maybe you're going to make Kydex sheaths or something like that. On that note, guess what we have in the gear shop now? An awesome Kydex sheath for the Mora 2 Classic Knife. Uh, make sure you check that out in our gear shop. I owe a video uh, to Kelly at the gear shop for those, and I'll get that out this weekend. Um, but we do have them in stock. A lot of you guys seem like you would be really interested in them when we, we put that out. So just a side there. But when it comes to making your own Kydex, KnifeKits.com. You want buffalo horn? KnifeKits.com. You want camel bone for handle material? KnifeKits.com. You want mammoth tusk? KnifeKits.com. You got it? If you can think of it, and somebody's ever made a knife out of it, they probably have it. And if you want to just get started at a very basic level, they have kit systems that you can use as well uh, to learn the trade of knife making. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been a reader of Backwoods Home Magazine since 1993 when I got out of the Army. I was a dead broke guy that would walk to the mall and go to Barnes & Noble and uh, buy a coffee so I didn't feel like a freeloader and sit there and read and learn information all day. That's that's how far back it goes. I became a subscriber as soon as I kind of got on my feet after that period of my life. I've been one ever since, and I think you should be too. Check them out at backwoodshome.com. And, uh, you know, I'll tell you what, they are just absolutely awesome folks. And it's really exciting for me today to be able to work with people like Dave Duffy, Jackie Clay, Masad Ayub, and people I've been reading for years and uh, now I actually have them working with me and be working with them. Awesome magazine, awesome resource. Kind of think of it like Mother Earth News with a libertarian flair and a lot more direct, applicable information as well. Check them out today, backwardshome.com. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members, and you can help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Um, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service. If you email me before, not after you join, put service discount in the subject line. And in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or if you're prior service, who you are and what you did. I'll send you back a discount code to thank you for your service. Do this before, not after you join. Or if you're already a member, we can do this on renewal. Get in touch with me when you're coming up on your renewal date. I also extend this offer to uh, firefighters, uh, EMTs, and paramedics, and other first responders. Uh, with that wrapped up, we are ready to get into the main topic of today's show. I want to give you a little quick news update here, though, on some some things, um, specifically on Mulligan Mint. I've had a lot of questions lately about ordering from Mulligan Mint. Um, I had some concerns, and I said so in the past. I would tell you right now, if you want to order from Mulligan Mint, there probably hasn't been a better time for you to order from Mulligan Mint, no matter what you want. Um, in this bankruptcy proceeding that they're dealing with, they have a court-appointed trustee. That trustee is on site. And is it is there to enforce mandates from the bankruptcy court. 
And one of those mandates right now is that any order that comes in will receive priority for shipping over any order from the past. So the backlog has to be worked from the most recent backwards, but all new orders must be filled upon receipt. Um, and that is being court enforced. That's bad news for people with an order stuck. But if you want something now, it's good news. For those of you that think, well, Rob should do that differently. Rob doesn't listen. Court order, court appointed trustee, okay, cannot do anything else. And one guy said, well, you should just not take new orders. Then they'll really be bankrupt and really out of business instead of bankruptcy for protection because there'll be no cash flow. Okay, so that person doesn't have an understanding of business. I don't like this. I will tell you guys flat out, right now I am owed over $20,000 in commissions as a creditor in this bankruptcy. I am owed that much money because back in uh, August I told Rob, do not pay me. Do not pay me. I'm with you as a partner. I don't hold anything against him, but I'm in the boat with those of you guys that are there with me. Um, and it sucks, and it's it's, you know... You, you can you can do your own homework to figure out how this mess all occurred. I won't go through it again, uh, but it's not like Rob wanted to do this. I do want to say this. There's been some comments, well, like, why does he get a pass? Well, he, he's, the victims are the people that are owed money. Just flat out, I want you guys to understand this, and I'm, I don't like bringing this topic back up, but it is important that people understand this. When this all started, Back this summer with Republic Medals, when they illegally kidnapped and falsely imprisoned Rob, lied to his brother and ransacked his men, held him at gunpoint for over eight hours without any food, water, let him take a piss. When that happened, what I think should have happened is the next day, Rob should have filed criminal and civil charges against Republic, brought the hammer down on their ass, and got him to come to some sort of an agreement and be reasonable. But he didn't because he wanted to take a higher road. I think that in all of this was his biggest mistake. I would have had the son of a bitches in, 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 in prison by now if it was me, if they weren't willing to get reasonable after what they did. Okay? So that's, that's what happened there. But what, what did Mulligan do the next day? Do you want to know what Mulligan did the next day? Um, well, not the next day. Right after that, within a couple of days, Republic launched a lawsuit. Uh, saying that Mulligan owed him a certain amount of money. And Mulligan said, we absolutely do. They immediately offered them a judgment for the full amount due to be fully repaid by January 1st, 2014. Immediately made that offer. Republican, Republic declined the offer. So far, they've gotten very little to nothing, and we're rapidly approaching January 1st. During that time, massive damage continued to be done to Mulligan's reputation and into their ability to do business, And that's why we're in the mess that we're in today. So never at any time did Rob or his staff say they didn't owe Republican the money. They simply said, we got behind on a line of credit. We're trying to work out a deal. They offered them a court-enforceable judgment for the full amount owed to be paid in full by January 1. And it was declined. So they are where they are. I'm standing by my friend, and I'm being completely open and honest with you guys. Done. Hopefully I won't even be talking about this thing again. Real quick, year 1244 before we go into your first call for our history segment. Um, not much except the Seventh Crusade was launched. This was due to the siege and fall of Jerusalem. And uh, what had happened is the uh, Crusaders had kind of taken over and uh, conquered the city. And uh, then basically a siege was laid to the city. And the city was completely ransacked and destroyed, pretty much burned to the ground. 
so that it wasn't usable by anybody anymore. It was it was in complete ruins. So then, you know, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II launched a crusade to take it back. That's what happened in 1244, fighting over a place that had completely been burned out that pretty much most of the people um, had had left. Actually, it wasn't the Holy Roman. It was the Seventh Crusade was done under Louis IX of France and was motivated by the massacres that, that came with that. But um, the Crusades continue in the Holy Lands. Not a lot there, but that's the only thing of any note. If you want to know more about the year 1244, though, there is a link in today's show notes. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack. This is Lynn from North Carolina. I just have a quick question. Um, when I'm outside doing gardening, people will come up and ask, you know, what are you doing? So I usually have about 10 seconds to tell them what I'm doing before they get bored or make an assumption or something. So how should I best use that 10 seconds? All right, thanks. Bye. Well, Lynn, I'm glad you are actually concerned with this, like like this is important to you. You really want to spread kind of the message of, of producing your own food. And uh, I guess if you're having people get bored that fast, they're not really listening because you got a great great voice. You sound really happy and cheerful, and I'd probably talk to you regardless of what you were talking about, at least for more than 10 seconds. Uh, maybe that's a bit of an exaggeration. But I think that if you really want to kind of hook somebody's interest, say – Well, what I'm doing is growing food better than, of better quality than anything I could ever buy in a store. Would you like some? See, that, that, that be, well, how, how, what? You know, that, that gets this whole line of questioning. When people start asking questions, you start talking about the parts that they're interested in. They're like, well, are you selling it? No, I'll just give you some. Well, can I have it now? No, it has to grow. You know, um, but when my tomatoes come in, you know, I'll send a bag over. Where do you, which house do you live in? And that's a great way to form community. I, I've, I've found very few people that aren't interested in the the results of a garden. They're just not interested in the work of a garden. Uh, my wife, for, for example, the, she'll dig her butt off to plant flowers, but she has very little interest in doing the digging part for planting food. But she loves to harvest it. She gets really excited when we go out and harvest a bunch of stuff. So I, I think that there's more interest on the result than the input, especially on the on the front end for people. So I would focus on that. I'd also say, let me show you. Don't try to explain that which can be seen. What, what can be seen is so much more interesting. And then realize sometimes people are busy. And when they say, what are you doing? They want you to say, oh, I'm gardening. And they go, oh, that's nice. And they walk on and they don't really remember the conversation. These are the people that you, then they say, well, how are you doing? And they expect you to say fine. And then you, they say, well, nice to know. And they leave, right? So sometimes that's just what's going on. And nothing to do with what's going on. These are the people sometimes that when they, you, they say, well, how are you doing? If you went, I'm doing like shit, they'd say, well, that's great. And they'd walk because they wouldn't even hear it. Because they've already in their head pre-programmed that the answer is supposed to be, I'm fine. What are you up to? I'm hanging out. Fine, right? So understand you got those two different sides of things. Well, when a person genuinely asks what you're doing, I think what you want to do is invite them in to experience, to see, to touch, to smell, to taste. I mean, if you're in like this time of year, you should have something productive. Hand them a pepper. Hand them a pepper. My sister-in-law, who had like zero interest at all, right? One day she was over at her house. Look, well, that's nice. That's nice. I just handed her a pepper. She ate it. The next two times she came over, they was like, that pepper was so good. Like, the freshness is just something that people are de detached from. So, 
I mean, it's a pretty simple question, and that's my basic answer. If you want to share uh, gardening and growing food, tell people about the results, share the results, and demonstrate over talk. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Thanks for that one, Lynn. Hi, Jack. This is Ian in Arizona. I have a question for Darby Simpson on the Expert Council, and that is what advice he would give for uh, someone considering completely free-ranging a flock of chickens. I have uh, a chunk of property, a bunch of acres um, in, in an area in northern Arizona, and I'm thinking this summer of getting about a dozen chickens. I'm thinking half Fayumis and half Hamburgs. Build them an elevated and, and fairly well-protected insulated coop, and then just let them free range. My hope is that uh, in the, the scrub and the, the high scrub around their coop, they can completely feed themselves. Um, I'm a little concerned about whether or not they would be laying eggs in the coop in a roosting, you know, a, a nesting box, or if they'd be laying them all around the place under bushes and in trees. Uh, I would be providing water for them at the coop because while they may be able to find food, they will not be able to find water around. And uh, so, yeah, my, my two major, three major concerns are whether they'd be able to find enough food to sustain themselves, how vulnerable they would be to predators. We have primarily coyotes and hawks. Um, also owls, and then uh, whether I'd be able to actually find the eggs. So any any thoughts on that would be much appreciated. Thanks. Bye. Well, I have some thoughts there, and uh, I'll, I'll hold my thoughts until uh, we hear from Darby. Darby, what say you, sir? Hello, Jack. This is Darby Simpson from the Expert Council calling in to answer a question about laying hens that was given to us by Ian in Arizona. Now, Ian is interested in trying to get 12 laying hens to get all of their food from the scrub grasses on his property in northern Arizona. Now, he didn't say what type of landscape he has, but it's probably possible to do this, but it may present a few difficulties. Ian's other questions were, are they going to be vulnerable to predators, and what should he do about that? And his predation issues, he believes, are going to be coyotes, hawks, and possibly owls. And then lastly, he was concerned about finding the eggs. If he allows them to free range, or they're just going to go and lay eggs all over the place. Now, as for the coop, he said he's going to have to construct something and that he was going to build a coop and insulate it and, and have it all set up for him. And my first suggestion actually would be to make the coop portable. Um, if you're going to allow the birds to really truly free range and try and get all of their food from the landscape, what you're going to find is that after time uh, with the coop being in one fixed location is that they're going to completely deforest an area. So it's really best if you can move them around. I don't know if your landscape is rocky or, or you know hard terrain or what it looks like. I've never been in northern Arizona. But if at all possible, build something so that you can move it around. And that might include putting it on a small flatbed trailer and actually building the coop on that trailer that you could then hook it up to an ATV or a small lawn tractor or something and move it around to different locations. Um, as for the eggs, you may have some problems with them deciding that they want to go lay the eggs off in the tall grass somewhere. I've, I've had that problem here at my farm from time to time. They'll get in, into a, a bad habit and begin laying eggs in areas that I don't want them to lay eggs in. So personally what I've done is when they start doing that is I'll just leave them in the coop a little bit longer of a morning. I won't let them out first thing. Uh, Generally speaking, the chickens are going to lay almost all their eggs by about 10 or 11 o'clock of a morning. Um, now, I don't know, you know, if you're home throughout the day or if you, you know, you work 
and, and no one's around to let them out later. Uh, I actually saw a pretty neat little contraption at a conference I went to last February where a guy had wired up a timer and a solar panel and a small little power setup to actually open the door and close the door on his mobile chicken coop every morning and every night. So he set the timer for specific times and the solar uh, panel and an energizer then operated this little mechanism to open the door, leave it open for a few, uh, for most of the day and then close it when it was time for the chickens to go up. And it was pretty ingenious. So just a thought there if you're not around or if someone else isn't around, uh, to let them out and close them up that, you know, that might be an option for you. You'd have to look into, you know, how to do that. But, uh, it was pretty neat. Um, you're going to be hauling water to them. And just as, as an aside, I'd, I'd suggest using something like a gravity fed waterer. Uh, the ones that I use are from a company called Cool Corporation, and that's spelled C-U-H-L. And it's just a, a gravity fed Bellmatic waterer. And what you do is you hook that up to a five gallon bucket. You put your five gallon bucket on a little shelf that's up above the waterer, so it's got plenty of pressure. And that pressurizes it, and it just gravity flows and fills up the bell. And as it fills up, it, it pulls the bell down, and that shuts the valve off. It's a really simplistic system, works really great. So you might want to incorporate that into your coop uh, or just outside of your coop, um, whatever works for you. As far as the predators go, my guess is that you're probably going to run into some issues. Um, I don't know. Only you know what your landscape is like and, and how heavy the predators are there, but... Chickens are the lowest common food group for everything else out there. So if you let them run around long enough, eventually something will start eating them. And once they find that food source, they won't stop until that food source is depleted. So you may want to look at using some portable electric fence from a company like Premier or uh, Kencove, which is located in Pennsylvania. Um, and then you would want to hook that up to a portable solar charger. Uh, again, I would reference Premier Fence because I've, I've used these chargers a lot. They're to model PRS50. That's a great smaller portable energizer. Works really well for charging a, a one or two sections of the uh, the poultry netting that you can, you know, move around. And then, so if the whole thing's portable, if the whole thing's movable, and the the goal is to get these guys to forage for as much of their own food as they possibly can, this is probably what it's going to take. I'm not saying you can't do it the other way, but they're going to have to get further and further away from that fixed coop. And the further away they get from that fixed coop, um, the further away they are from where they need to lay their eggs, the further they are away from protection from predators. And they're just really going to deforest the area around it. Um, and this is really another reason to make the coop portable, and that is for protection from predators. So just something to consider there. You can always leave it in place, but, man, it's it's great to have that option to just pick up the whole system and move it if they've deforested an area, if you want to move them to a different area or whatever. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful goal to have your laying hens get all of their food from foraging, but there's nothing wrong with supplementing them with a little bit of feed, some cracked grains or something like that, or kitchen scraps, garden scraps, whatever. Um, you know, and, and another great thing about getting them a little bit of food like that, what we have found here is that when it's time to put them up at night, if that's the only time of day they get a little bit of grain, when they see me coming 
with that scoop in my hand and that little bit of green in there, man, they follow me like the Pied Piper right into the chicken coop, and up they go, and I give them their food, and I lock the door, and I'm I'm done. They just they run in on their own. So, anyway, those are really my thoughts, and I I hope that it's helpful. Uh, to learn more about me and to read some free how-to articles, please visit my website at darbysimpson.com. I would also like to mention that myself, Jason Akers of the Self-Sufficient Gardener, and Rick Beach, who hold the PDC from Jeff Lawton's Permaculture Research Institute, will be hosting a sustainable agricultural and permaculture education conference here in Indianapolis this coming January. This will be a two-day classroom-style workshop that covers everything from gardening to raising animals and will be applicable to homesteading as well as commercial operations. We are proud to support the TSP community by offering a 10% discount to MSB members. Simply use the discount code under my name, Darby Simpson, in the benefits section of the MSB area. I'd like to mention that if you register two seats at the conference using the discount code, it will more than pay for a year of MSB membership. To learn more about this conference, please visit us at MidwestSustainable.org. Thanks, Jack. Great and very detailed uh, answer by uh, Darby. I think one thing I didn't hear Darby say, and it's probably because he's never had to deal with the damn things before, uh, but if he did, he might very well tell you what I'm about to tell you. No Faomis. They are the worst chickens on planet Earth. There, there, there is no good that comes from a Faomi. I call them a buzzard chicken. They're just horrible. Um, I think if you had a rooster and you weren't worried about raising eggs and you just wanted one tough, badass rooster to stay with your girls, they might make a good rooster. I mean, they're a, they're a tough, fast-growing, mean-ass bird, and they might be good for that. I think that might be all that they're good for. Um, on, the, on the trying to get all their diet off free range, you might be able to do it. I wouldn't. Um, chicken feed, even good quality um, GMO soy-free chicken feed is not that expensive to feed 12 birds. Uh, I just did an article on bar- barley fodder systems, and that's something you can supplement their feed with as well. And it, I'm not saying you have to give a huge amount of their diet, but by providing those supplemental feed rations, you're ensuring the nutrition of your birds and the health of your birds. And birds that are especially, you know, if you're trying to do like something on major acreage, and you're trying to do something commercially and you're, you're trying to work for it so that it, you know, there's no minimizing the inputs and all. I, I, I can see it. But I, I think with a dozen birds, you know, feeding a, feeding a pound of feed a day or something like that is, is not a lot to be offering them. Um, you know, it's a twelfth of a pound per bird. And, and you probably don't even need to feed that much. You could probably feed them half a pound a day. Uh, and, and then you're down to a 24th of a pound. But there's, there's some real value to that. Um, I'll tell you that I feed my birds as much as they'll take, and they still do plenty of free-ranging. So um, they usually get out in the morning. They, they, uh, they get their barley. Uh, if their feeders are empty, I fill their feeders. They'll peg out their feeders a few times, and then they're off. They're off to the races. So I would, I would not try to do it 100%. People say, well, then what about if the shit hits the fan? If I have birds that are completely free-range, then um, I don't have to worry about feeding them. Well, if you've been providing supplemental feed, you have really, really healthy birds, um, and you've been improving your land the entire time, they'll be able to last a lot longer in that situation because you'll find that you'll be relying on your own land a lot more in that type of a grid down if you ever got there anyway. So I think that the cost analysis there, some supplemental feed makes sense. I'm totally with Darby on the portable coop. 
Um, I encourage you strongly to look at the way Jeff Lawton's doing things with the chickens and the portable electric fence, basically the coop uh, that he has is built on a trailer off an old pickup truck. That's kind of a simple, easy way to do it. Um, I'd prefer to build something completely by hand, though. That way um, your floor can just basically be wide open to the ground and all the poo goes to the ground. Um, and you, they can have perches and nesting boxes in there. And then you won't ever have to look for your eggs because your coop will be with the birds at all times. If you set it up the right way, basically you can set your electro net up to ride on your, your, your coop. Uh, and then just basically always have it set up so that it, it the, the coop is accessible from inside the net. Now, that's how I would move the birds around. If I was going to move my birds around on a larger property than I own, uh, they would have a mobile coop that would go with them. And this makes one thing really, really easy. When it's time to move the coop, just wait till nighttime when the birds go in the coop. And you move the coop with the birds inside. Then there's no escaping birds. There's no, and that's not really free range. This paddock shift is much better than free range. Free range, um, is not really a great way to run birds. Uh, they'll, they'll go to certain areas and they will, as Darby said, overwork some areas and underwork others. And you'll have a lot less control. With a mobile coop, you can also put on a pretty big water reserve and you can, you know, fill it once a week or once every two weeks, depending on the usage and how many birds you have. Um, those are the things that I guess I would add. And, uh, again, I, I really encourage people that have this whole concept of the birds getting 100% of their nutrition off the land to strongly consider sub-supplemental feed. I think you'll end up with healthier birds that will do a better job for you and no Faomis. I think that we should send all the Faomi chickens back to Egypt where they came from. Um, they, they lay small eggs. They're small birds. They're mean, and if you want to use something like Electronet to move them around, they can fly like you wouldn't believe, and they will fly out of anything, and they will not stay where you put them. We have them. We, we did the typical wing clipping on a Faomi where you cut just the flight feathers on one side to destabilize them. Up and over the fence they go. So then I cut the secondaries off that side. So one wing, primaries and secondaries cut, totally destabilized, up and over the fence they go. Fine, cut the flight feathers and the secondary feathers off the second wing. These birds have no freaking wings left. I don't know how they do it. Up and over the fence they go. Um, as far as I'm concerned, they're just a horrible chicken. Um, I tried it. I did it because of the hardy nature and everything that I'm saying. It's bad, should be good. And it just did not end up being something I would want. If you'd like some Faomi chicken hens and you live somewhere in North Texas, I have two of them. You're welcome to come get them and take them away. I'll give them to you. Just let me know, and you can have them. Uh, they'll sporadically lay little tiny crappy eggs for you, and they'll be a pain in your ass, and they make a horrible sound, and uh, they don't like the other chickens, and I just don't like them. Uh, if you've had a different experience, if you've had a positive experience with this breed, I'd love to hear from you. Maybe it's just me. Maybe they need more of their own kind. I don't know, but I sure don't recommend them. Hey Jack, I was listening to your program a week ago of a week ago, and you were talking about uh, the pension programs and Social Security and what they would happen, what would happen to them in the future if the m money was devalued. Um, I was wondering what you thought would happen if, what you think will happen to entitlement programs like food stamps and disability and all the various things like that in the future at that same point. Will they be devalued as quickly um, or will they hold out so a lot, you know, as long as they can on those 
And if they do do that, will they, when they finally devalue them, I guess, how do you think people are going to react? I have a my own idea about that, but I just, you know, kind of want to get your opinion on it. Um, live in, a, you know, the outskirts of Houston, and I just kind of wondered what you thought people would do when when they didn't get those checks anymore or if they got a you know, smaller proportion of it. Um, we're also, we've already seen them griping because they get $35 a month less, you know, that that's just griping. Yeah. Anyway, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Um, I think the reason you have the question is you don't understand what I mean by devalue. Okay, so it sounds like in the question you think the way that they would devalue um, Social Security would be to say, well, everybody that was getting $2,100 a month in Social Security is now going to get $1,500. That wouldn't be a devaluing. That would be a cutting of benefits. When I speak of devaluing with these situations, what I'm actually talking about is devaluing the currency. So what that means is a person that's on $1,800 Social Security this month will get $1,800 next month. The problem will be through rapid inflation or through a revaluation of the currency, which when a, when a nation gets to the end of its rope economically, what they will do is hit a reset, but they'll completely revalue the currency. To give you an example of this happening, this absolutely just happening and being done, here's how this occurred. So in the 1930s, a bunch of hoodoo is made over the fact that Fred, uh, uh, President Roosevelt seized the gold from the people and took away gold from the people. But what most people don't really understand is how it was wrong, like what really made it wrong. What was the what was the real agenda behind it? So what happened is at the time you had a, a coin that was roughly an ounce of gold, and that coin was worth $20. as a $20 gold piece. So you went to the store and you bought something that was 15 bucks, and you gave them that gold piece, and they might turn around and hand you five silver dollars. Right in change, and you got your $15 item. To, to kind of put this in perspective of how money worked when money was based on metal. And when Roosevelt decided it was time to deal with all of the nation's debt and all of the how broke the nation was and how much more broke he was going to make the nation with all his social gravy train programs and with fighting a war, he realized that the, the finances didn't work and what was needed was a revaluation of the currency. So taking the gold was step one. Step two was then floating the dollar against gold, and gold was actually worth about $35 uh, on the market, on the whole global market, though it was only being traded internally for $20. This meant the U.S. dollar had a shitload of purchasing power, which is good when you have the capital, but bad when you have the debt. Right, so that means that you have the, the you have a debt of twenty dollars that really costs thirty five dollars to pay off. All right, I think it was actually thirty three and some change, but in in that range. What they did then, once they took all the gold in and they issued paper money against it, they issued the paper money in total at the the market rate of thirty three something or thirty five bucks, just call it. What this meant was. When you brought your $20 gold piece in, they gave you $20. But then there was enough money issued against the gold to create a spread of $15 and devalue the $20 bill they handed you when you turned in your coin. All right? It was very obvious, 
but the nation was in such turmoil and trusted its government so much of the time, not a lot was made of it. It was much more obvious than what they can do now because now they just issue more money. So what I'm saying when I say they're going to devalue these, these, these things is they're going to devalue the capital, the money itself, so that they can afford to pay for Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, welfare, food stamps, all this stuff. But the, 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 while the amount people will receive will be the same number, it will buy a lot less. And I don't mean it the way we generally think of that. I don't mean that, you know, today a loaf of bread is three bucks and that by the end of the year it's three twenty-five. No, no. I mean that like today bread is three dollars and next month it's four. And next month it's five. And next month it's six. And maybe the month after that it goes to six and a quarter. And maybe the month after that it goes to six fifty. And maybe the month after that it goes to seven dollars. And it just keeps doing that. It just keeps doing that. To some point, and then eventually it stabilizes under a new valuation. If they did it, for example, on a four to one revaluation, eventually a two dollar item would be eight dollars. Okay, that's a four to one revaluation. Um, it's it's not far off of what they would have to do. And what the reason this would be done is effectively it would take $20 trillion of U.S. debt and make it actually cost $5 trillion. Because there's so much more money to pay against the debt, but it would devalue all the money you and I are holding. So thereby, it would devalue the amount of benefit you receive in your, 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 your food stamp card or your Social Security check. And it would devalue everybody's money. What happens? People snap a gasket when they figure it out. So what do you have to do then? Eventually, you have to actually issue a new currency altogether to sweep some of this under the rug. It's basically a national bankruptcy, except it's not subject to the rules that a normal bankruptcy would be subject to because the nation has a military and it can force its will. So basically, you screw all your international creditors, you screw your own people, you set up a new monetary system and tell everybody how wonderful it's going to be. It's what Roosevelt did. It's what Nixon did. And it's what they'll do again. The key is, this time will be a lot more painful than those other two times. And those other two times were not good. Those other two times were not good. So there's your answer to your question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Wilson from South Texas. My wife and I are starting to look into investment or retirement options, and the company I work for offers a 401k plan, which they will match up to 6% of what I put in. It was appealing at first, but listening to the news you shared about the government's involvement in such options, it has me worried. The only other idea I had was to open a Roth IRA. Uh, IRA sorry. From what I've researched and been told, it's currently on the top of my list. I was hoping to get your thoughts on both options and on any other options I haven't considered. Since I'm quite young and I'm walking through something I have little knowledge of, I don't want to make a hasty mistake. Uh, thank you, Jack. Appreciate it. Okay. Um, this is a, like I've, I've beaten this one so many times, but I'm going to take another swing at it, I guess, um, to make people understand. Okay, first of all, what I didn't hear is whether or not your 401K at your job is or has the option of being a Roth. So the Roth IRA you mentioned, I'll talk about that in a second, but does your 401k have a Roth option? It actually makes it to me a lot more appealing if it does. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you why when I talk about Roth IRAs and then just kind of throw it back to it. If it does not, 
It's not out of the question, but it's less appealing to me. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. That said, if they'll match up to 6% on your investment, a 100% immediate return is hard to beat with that 6%. The, the only thing that would make me go into a 401k in this day and age, if I had a job anymore, would be a match. And I would never, don't, I would never uh, put in one penny above the match, not one penny. If they match 2%, I was going to do it, I'd do 2%. If they match 1%, I'd do 1%. If they match 10%, I'd consider doing up to 10%. So first and foremost, I wouldn't go over that number under any circumstances because there's no benefit to you to do so. There really is not, other than they'll do it for you. Okay. Um, the other reason I don't like 401s is I think they will come after 401s with, with regulation before they'll come after IRAs. 401s are tied to your employment. 401s um, are part of what are perceived as an employee benefit. 401s are much more seen as a job-related pension. 401s are far more uh, popular in America because they're set up through work, so there's a bigger target on them because there's more there. 401s apply to the middle class, who is most easily led. IRAs often apply more to the affluent, more informed individual and are a little bit harder to sell on the concepts that you're, you're, that the thievery will be sold to people on. So all in all, there's a bigger target on 401ks. 401ks have less control. When you look at your 401k, you'll see your investment options. And this is the big problem. Just because something there is you like today doesn't mean it'll be there tomorrow. At the end of the year, they may say, we have new investment funds. And usually when that happens, this is what happens. Let's say you've bought into fund XYZ. And you have $10,000 in that fund. They won't take your $10,000 out of that fund. They'll, they'll basically close the investment option to that fund and say, unless you choose, your money now goes to this new thing, which will probably be government bonds. And then you'll have to figure out where you want it to go. So they will generally grandfather a fund once it's been eliminated from the options. You won't have to get rid of it, but you won't be able to buy it anymore. You'll be stuck with the options they choose for you. Most 401ks I've looked at recently, I'm not even going to get into the, the government bond scam right now, but most 401ks I've looked at recently aren't very good options. There's not a lot of really decent funds that they're putting in there, and frankly, I don't like mutual funds very much to begin with because of the restrictions they come with. And what I mean by that is your financial liar, oh, advisor, will tell you something stupid like, Well, they have the best guy in the world running this mid-cap stock fund, and he studies the companies and goes there, and he does with your money what he would do with his own. And that's a complete lie. That's why I call them financial liars. Here's why it's a lie. If that guy knows what he's doing, and he sees a major market crash coming, he would take his own money and put it into a safer category. He would either go into some sort of a hedge uh, against the, the loss, He would take that money, just go into cash with it. He might put it into precious metals. He might move it to a commodity. And, and all in all, if he's not really sure, but he knows something bad's about to happen, he just would move into a heavy cash position. If he's managing a mid-price stock fund, the only thing he can change is which stocks he holds. That's it. So he has to sit and take it in the face, or more accurately, let you take it in the face. He has to stay largely invested in mid-sized uh, cap stocks. And as other investors freak out and sell to go to cash, the only way he can give those investors their cash out of their funds is sell their stocks, which drops the price of the stocks that you're still holding. So mutual funds have an inherent weakness there, especially when you can't quickly move into another position. You have other positions in a 401, but not that many. An IRA. 
you can hold almost anything in IRAs. Almost anything you want. Especially anything traded as a, as a commodity across paper. So if you want to hold gold and silver, forget the physical metal IRAs. Hold your physical metal in your hand. Don't even bother with it. I'm not going to explain it. No physical Physical metal IRAs are the dumbest thing ever created. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. I hate them. You take the most anonymous and touchable and tangible form of wealth in the world and make it the most regulated and, 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 and targeted form of wealth in the world today inside a pension account. Don't do it. But if you want to hold gold and silver, ETFs, done. You want Timberland, done. You want to buy stock in a specific company, done. You want to buy a piece of real estate, as long as you don't live there, if it rents to somebody else during that time, you can do that. It's, it's totally flexible. This is why I'm going to tell you to go with the Roth, Roth option every single time. One, your financial liar's full of shit. No, it doesn't benefit you to pay taxes in the future when you have a lower tax rate because your financial liar is a lying piece of dung and does not know what your tax rate will be when you're 65 years old. And if he tells you he does, he is a liar. You have no idea what the government's going to do to tax rates. 20 years or 30 years from now, they can't tell you. What, ask him what tax rates will be in the next two years, and he won't know. He will not know. So, done. That advantage doesn't exist. The real reason is this. In a Roth investment, the principal invested is not subject to penalties and taxation upon withdrawal because you've already paid taxes on it. Got it? What this means... Even if it's a 401k and you leave your job and roll it to a Roth IRA, which as long as it's a Roth 401k, you can do. Here's how this works. Let's say over the next five years you invest $100,000. And you were a good Johnny, man. You you paid attention. You stayed on it. I don't care whether it's 401, IRA, combination thereof. But at this point, it's all in a Roth IRA. And $100,000 came out of your pocket and went in there. You've done good and it's now got $200,000 in it. You start to look at our government and think these, these pricks are going to come after my money. And you decide it's time to exit some of that position. And you want to take that money out of that vehicle. You could take every penny you put in for now out with no penalties whatsoever. People will tell you you can't. They are wrong. I was wrong about this at one time. It's all in how you fill out the paperwork and it is completely legal to remove every penny that you invested but none of the gains without consequences of taxes or penalties. What this means, if the market takes a dump and you put in 100000 and there's only 95000 left and you decide, I want this the hell out of this investment vehicle, I've changed my, the world has changed and I know they're coming for it, you could get it out of there. Now, it leaves a paper trail. They know you've taken it. But it now changes its form and you can move it. So for all of those reasons I like a Roth better, and for all of those reasons I like an IRA over a 401k, and about the only way I'm going to be willing to do a 401k today is if I get a good match, which you have, and I'm probably going to require that that 401k have a Roth option. Um, that's my assessment on it. In the end, you have to make your own decisions here. I, I can't tell you what to buy and what to sell and when to buy and when to sell. I can just tell you how the vehicles work. And I will tell you, anybody in this day and age that tells you there's any advantage to you in going conventional with either an IRA or a 401k doesn't know their ass from a hole in the ground. And those of you that think there is an advantage, don't email me. I'm not reading your email. I've been doing this a very, very long time. And there's nothing you can say to change my opinion about this matter. Uh, because you're, you're selling vaporware. 
You're selling something that's based on the co the concept of knowing something you cannot know, and uh, it, it just doesn't ever work out. And as Dave Ramsey puts it, one of his few pieces of good investing advice, um, in the end, people do what they do. And that means a person that puts away um, $500 a month will put in $500 a month, regardless of the tax advantage of pre-tax versus post-tax. They're going to put the same amount of money in. So in the end, they're going to end up with the same amount of money in the account. And in the end, they're either going to have money that gets paid out 100% with no taxes, or they're going to have money that gets taxed. And there's no way around that one. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. I'm going to redo my last message. Um, this is Leslie, stuck in Northern California. I have um, a cabin and on 10 acres. I bought the 10 acres um, without a well. I'm getting my water from the above 10 acres. Um, I've now purchased that property, but now my cabin is 900 feet from my well. We do have water pipes in the ground that do run water down to the lower 10 acres. It's 900 feet away. Um, I want to be able to run electricity up to the well from my lower lot so I do not have to carry a generator up to the top to run water all the time. Now, I do have storage containers, um, but I like the water coming right out of the ground um, for me to drink. Um, so, and, and plus, when it snows, it gets harder. So, um, I'm trying to figure out if I need to run that wire underground or if there's wire I can run just above ground um, that 900 feet I hear that maybe aluminum would conduct better than copper. Um, I'm just wondering what gauge I would need um, and if it's even possible at that length um, of 900 feet. And I would appreciate any help that you could give me on this. And um, love your show. Thank you for your help. Oh, and it's a half-horsepower half pump at the, on the well. Well, that was a question I had quite a few answers for, um, but I actually knew somebody that would have a, probably a more detailed answer than me. That would be, of course, Mr. Stephen Harris. So, Steve, what say you here? Hello, Leslie Stuck in Northern California. This is Steve Harris for the expert panel calling in to answer your question. And you asked one heck of a question out there. I'm going to use this to promote a little resource. We have a little channel on this communication network called Zello, Z-E-L-L-O.com. And there is a whole bunch of us TSPers who hang out on the TSPN channel. That would be the TSP, uh, the Survival Podcast Network. And you can go to Zello and search for it, and you can come and talk with us because there's lots of people on the channel who know a lot of things about a lot of subjects, including one Mitch from Texas who is an electrician. And I had an in-depth conversation with him all about your particular setup, Leslie. And, you know, I would just love to say, hey, Leslie, you probably only need a 20-amp circuit. You only need number 8-gauge copper for this and everything else, and you can run it to your generator, but I can't tell you that. 
I don't know what your local ordinances and your local codes are. One thing I can tell you for sure, you just are not going to go to Home Depot, get some eight gauge, you know, wire that with three wires in it. It's got an eight, it's got two eight gauges in it and one ten, uh, ten gauge ground. You're just not going to go to Home Depot and buy that and run it from your house on the ground all the way to your generator. You just are not going to, to do that. You will end up getting uh, degradation of the casings from the sun, and you will get water seepage in there, and it will short system out, and you will have nothing but problems. So what you're really going to have to do is you're going to have to get a local certified electrician out there to help you, to look at your situation, who knows all the codes, because you're going to have to decide between running something called triplex above ground, and above ground does not mean on the ground. Above ground means off the ground, like one foot off the ground, three feet off the ground. Put in telephone poles and it's 10 feet off the ground. That's what I'm talking about. You're going to have to decide between that and trenching and putting the, the conductor inside of gray PVC pipe which is underground PVC piping. And you can find that at Home Depot if you don't know what it looks like. It's got a flanged end on one end and a normal end on the other, and they just go, they just connect into each other and go end to end to end, and you run your wire through it. So you're going to have to go below ground. Now, can you go three feet below ground, or can you go a foot below ground? What's your local ordinances? We don't know. Uh, how are you going to trench? If you got rocky soil like Jack, you're not going to trench. Can you go to Home Depot and rent a trencher? Yes. Can you go to Home Depot and find some people to help you, depending upon what your population is around you? Yes. Uh, will your electrician be able to do this? Yes. Will he charge you a lot of money for it? Yes. Uh, you're going to have to find a friendly one that you can work with. Because, look, if you just went and bought the 8-gauge wire, uh, just, just, or just the eight gauge of wire alone being copper is $800. Okay. Just, just for the wire. It doesn't include the PVC. It doesn't include the trenching. doesn't include anything else. Uh, so, I mean, you're looking at multi thousands of dollars to run the power 900 feet all the way to your, to your well pump. Now, as far as aluminum versus copper, the only there's no advantage with aluminum. There's no conduction advantage. Aluminum and copper is by far a superior conductor than aluminum. The thing about aluminum is it's cheaper. Aluminum is a lot cheaper than copper. And if we're talking about running like a, a one or a zero gauge wire all the way out to your pump, because your pump requires a 30 amp circuit, then your aluminum is a cheaper option. But again, you're running a larger gauge wire. What you really want to do is you want to take your generator out to your pump and have an electrician there and have them measure what is the peak current that the pump is drawing. So when the pump starts up and is running, what is the peak current, the maximum current? You only got a half horsepower motor. You might only need to send 10 amps at 240 volts to that pump. If that is true, then that drastically reduces the size of the copper or aluminum you have to use because your voltage loss is directly proportional to your amount of current, okay? And 240 volts is a lot of voltage. It can go a long distance. We, we talk about this when we talk about 12 volts versus 120 volts for uh, lighting and other things with inverters and battery power, but with 240 volts AC, you got a good amount of push there. 
So, uh, you know, you might actually be more economical with the solar system that I designed on a previous call-in show. The guy had a well pump, and he wanted to be able to run it off of solar, and I did all the research for that. And let's see, what episode was that? Okay, Jack will put a link uh, in the show notes to the episode, but it is the the call-in questions for June 28th of 2013. I do a whole show on how to design a solar system for a well, and I give you prices and everything else. So, Leslie, you're going to have to, you know, look between the two systems and say, do I want to go with a solar system up 900 feet away from my house, or do I want to go with uh, running the power directly from my house all the way up there? You're going to have to get the electrician out there and see what is going to need to be done for you, for your situation, for your local zoning codes and everything else. Sorry I couldn't be of more assistance. Uh, if you want... Uh, more information on my shows and all the stuff I've done with Jack there at solar1234.com. The battery show that I will be referencing a lot in the show I just mentioned was battery1234.com. Again, this is Steve Harris for the expert panel. Hey, guys, please pick up the phone, call the think line, and call in some more questions. Thank you. Great stuff from Mr. Stephen Harris. As always, I've got another question for Steve here. I'm going to go ahead and just play the question in Steve ans- Steve's answer to it, and then I'll be back to uh, take the next caller. Hey, Jack. This is Low Out Living. Um, I am completely out of debt as of the 30th of this month. And I just want to say thanks for getting me on the track for that. And I have a question. I, with my extra funds, I was finally able to go out and get a large generator, 7,000 watts. Um, I got it for a really good price on sale. Um, and it has four regular, looks like, household outlets. And then it has a three-prong twist lock and a four-prong twist lock. Uh, the three-prong is uh, 30 amp, and I think the two-prong is 20 amp, if I remember right. What do I use those for? I don't have anything in my house. Uh, I live in northeast uh, Indiana, and everything's gas in our house. Uh, what do I use those for? Uh, thanks, and uh, keep, it, keep everything up, buddy. It's freaking awesome. Thanks. Bye. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. Well, it's a short and sweet one because I'm not going to make this a whole lesson in sockets, but basically there's 15 amps, 120, in the world of 120 volt sockets, there's 15 amp, 20 amp, 30 amp, and 50 amp sockets. That's a, a simplicity of it. In your house, you got a normal 15-amp socket. If you see uh, a socket in your house where instead of having two slots, one of the slots is a T, that's a 20-amp socket. And that four-connection socket, that four-wire socket you're looking at on your generator, the first one you mentioned, is a 120-volt 30-amp socket. You would use that, for example, to connect to an RV or if you're running a lot of AC into your house through a large breaker and you had a large you had an outside connector you might use that your other connector which is the smarter connector for powering your house through your electrical panel is the 220 volt or 240 volt AC connector this is a three wire connector L1 L2 and neutral 
and this would be wired into your electrical panel or you can run to your well pump. You basically, you got to have a generator to run a well pump. Uh, anyways, I have a whole show on connecting generators to your house, and it's generator show number two. There's generator show number one, and there's generator show number two. And the entire, all the shows I did with Jack on the subject are at solar1234.com. That's S-O-L-A-R, 1234.com. I can give you a complete tutorial on every type of generator that is out there, plus how to hook it up to your house legally and illegally, the safe way and the ways that might get you killed or burn down your house. I tell you everything, so when you see the wrong method, you might go, oh, I don't want to do that. So anyways, uh, that's the answer to your question, and it's nice and short. Call in some more questions, guys. See ya. Bye. Hello, my question is for Keith Snow. This is Jerry from Michigan. Uh, my flock of laying hens is doing quite well. Now I have an abundance of eggs. I'm wondering if you could give me some ideas for using eggs in a dinner-type meal rather than just for breakfast. Um, can't use them all for the breakfast meals, so I'm looking to add the evening meal and using eggs. Thank you. Goodbye. This is your final warning. You are about to hear cooking advice from Chef Keith Snow. If you haven't eaten yet, find a snack now. Just kidding, guys. Anyway, let's hear what Keith has to say about this question. And then just like before, I actually have two for Keith this week. So as soon as he's done, I'm just going to go ahead and play the next question and then Keith's answer to that. And then I'll be back with you guys and we'll uh, we'll take one for me at that time. Hey, this is Chef Keith Snow from the Expert Panel. Wanted to address Jerry from Michigan's question about eggs. Jerry, thanks for calling in the question, and uh, congratulations for keeping chickens. Now, uh, you're running into uh, the conundrum that a lot of folks that raise farm animals, whether it be chickens or cows or sheep or goats, oftentimes run into, and that's what to do with uh, with the finished product. Um like eggs. Now, you don't want to get bored and eat omelets every day, although that is a terrific way to uh, consume eggs. And you mentioned specifically using eggs for dinner time. Now, that brings me to an important point here. Uh, if you go to Europe, particularly in France and countries similar to that, uh, well, certainly Great Britain uses a lot of eggs for breakfast. But in France in particular, you're going to be very hard-pressed uh, to find eggs served for breakfast. If they know you're American and you're staying at a an inn or a hotel, oftentimes they may have something there uh, just to kind of appease the Americans or the English. But uh, in general, the French are not egg eaters for breakfast. So where do they eat them? Well, lunch and definitely dinner. Now, I'll, I'll give you a uh, host of recipe ideas here for you to consider. Now, um, right away my mind goes to quiche, which is great for both lunch and dinner. And quiche is one of those things where it's like soup. The the variations can be endless, but the key point with quiche is it uses quite a bit of eggs. And anything that you've got growing, and quiche is a good um, recipe to have on hand for year-round use i.e. if you have a vegetable garden and you're getting uh, vegetables during the warmer months, 
you can just about use any vegetable, whether it be broccoli, mushrooms, asparagus, peppers, zucchini, uh, you name it, squash uh, in the fall. All of those things are terrific with eggs in quiche. And quiche is basically, just to give you a very quick um, sort of basic recipe for it, eggs, a little bit of cream, some salt and pepper. It's generally going to have some cheese in it, not always. And uh, a lot of times it's flavored with a hint of nutmeg, freshly ground, please. Now, um, that is a great way to, to make a basic uh, quiche, whether or not you do it in a pie crust or just uh, on a pie plate. You know, you can spray the pie plate with a little cooking spray or butter it and uh, make your quiche without that if you happen to be on a gluten-free diet. But the point is, quiches are simple to make. One of the things you need to remember is not to try to cook a quiche fast. Set the oven a little slow, about 325, um, and cook it for probably 45 minutes until it sets. And oftentimes people cook a quiche too fast and the top will get brown. And that's really not what you want to see. So you can start it out in the oven uncovered. After about 30 minutes, you may want to just take a sheet of tin foil and place it on top of the quiche and let it continue cooking until a toothpick or a knife comes out clean. Uh, don't overcook it. You don't want it super hard, but you certainly don't want it runny in the middle. One idea. Next idea, um, what about taking a mess of spinach and whether it be fresh or frozen, if it's frozen, you need to thaw it out completely and then squeeze it out excessively. Put it in either cheesecloth or a clean kitchen towel and get all of that water out because that is a deal killer, the water that comes in there. You want to get that all out. And then you can make a mixture of um, spinach, eggs, a copious amount of Parmesan cheese and toasted pine nuts. And you've got the ingredients for a delicious spinach pie. Definitely would use a little bit of nutmeg there. And um, you can take that and layer it between sheets that you get from the um, dough sheets. From you, What do they call those little things? The, the Greek, uh, boy, my mind is going. I need some more eggs for protein. Phyllo dough. Go into your, uh, your frozen section in the store and buy some phyllo dough. They're very, very paper-thin sheets of dough. You probably want to use four or five in each layer. Butter them and then layer your uh, spinach, cooked spinach mixture that I just mentioned. You're going to want to cook that a little bit. And uh, you can make a spinach, sort of a spinach baklava or a spinach pie. Um, you can make a spinach lasagna like that, taking no-boil lasagna sheets and take that spin, uh, fi uh, filling I just mentioned. You can add a little mozzarella cheese if you're inclined and um, you'll be living large. Now, <clears throat> let's keep going here. Um, now, eggs for dinner. A great little meal, particularly with a nice glass of wine, is, um, and I mentioned this before on my own podcast, French green lentils, and they're readily available, cooked and served, toss with a little mustard vinaigrette. You make a very simple vinaigrette with some Dijon mustard, shallots, red wine vinegar, and olive oil, of course, some salt and pepper. If you want to put a few herbs in there, like tarragon would be great, you can do that. And then take a properly cooked poached egg. To do that, you don't want to use a little water. You want plenty of water. I mean, I'm not talking two gallons, but you don't want two cups either. <clears throat> Maybe a quart 
of water and you want to put a few tablespoons of vinegar in that water. You could use white vinegar, red wine vinegar, it really doesn't matter. A couple tablespoons of vinegar, pinch of salt, and then uh, to make a proper poached egg, bring it up to a boil and then turn it down slightly. And uh, what you want to do is crack the eggs into a cup. Now, I've been cooking for over 25 years and very rarely will I make poached eggs without cracking them into a cup. Number one, you, you get a bad egg every so often. Number two, it's very easy to break the yolk and then you've got a mess in, in all that water. So crack the egg into a cup. Now, take your slotted spoon um, and stir that water. Stir, stir, stir until it's kind of the tornado effect. And then um, put your eggs in one at a time so they're not on top of each other. After a few seconds, stir again. You want to make sure that they don't set on the bottom. Because they'll have a tendency to want to set on the bottom, and that is a, a bad thing. So um, once you have the eggs spinning a little bit, that vinegar is going to help keep the whites together. Now, you can make these ahead of time, and this is often done in restaurants. I hate to break it to you, but if you get poached eggs a lot of times for breakfast, you know, four or five dozen poached eggs would be cooked off prior to breakfast service um, very lightly just till they're set, and then they take them out, drain them, and they put them in an ice water bath and just let them sit there. When somebody orders poached eggs, they throw a skillet on the stove, fill it up with some water, boils real quick, they put the eggs in there for a few seconds, and there you have it. Um, I don't really recommend that. It's something that you can do, but um, uh, the point is a nicely poached egg sitting on top of cooked lentils with a little bit of this mustard vinaigrette over it and some good cracked black pepper, some crusty bread, and a nice Pinot Noir, you're living large. So give that a try. What about chocolate cake? Now, uh, this is an area that uses, the recipe I'm going to mention, uses quite a few eggs. And it happens to be a gluten-free flourless chocolate cake that my mother um, gave me the recipe for. It is in the Harvest Eating Cookbook, my book, by the way. And basically what you're doing is taking uh, six eggs per per recipe of this cake. So you take six eggs, you separate them, and then what you're going to do is whisk the yolks with one cup of sugar. And I usually, that's what the recipe calls for. I usually back that down to about a half a cup of sugar. So you whisk the yolks up. You can use a blender if you, you know, with a whisk attachment or you just get in there with a whisk and a bowl. You whisk those things up until they change color, and they'll go from that yellow color to a pale yellow. The more air is whipped into them, the lighter in color they'll become. That's cool. So you whip those things up. In the meantime, you're melting some high-grade chocolate, at least a 60% cacao percentage. And uh, you melt that with a, about a tablespoon of butter and two tablespoons of dark coffee or espresso. And uh, you can just do that. I mean, they, the recipe calls for the double boiler, but like a lot of things in cooking, ah, that's horse manure. Just don't put it on a high heat. Keep it moving around. You're not going to burn it. Once it's melted, you're going to slowly combine chocolate with your beaten egg yolks. This is called tempering. Now, if you dump that hot chocolate mixture in there, there's a chance, albeit a very minimal chance, that you might cook the egg. So put a little bit of the chocolate um, whisk it together. That way the eggs start to rise in temperature and become similar to the temperature of the chocolate. Once that's complete, you'll add all the chocolate in there. The next thing you do is take the egg whites, and you want cold bowls, cold whisks, everything to be cold. 
take the whites, add about a quarter teaspoon of cream of tartar, and uh, whip those things up until they form and hold stiff peaks. Next step is going to be to combine the um, egg whites into the uh, egg yolk and chocolate mixture. Make sure the bowl that you use is big enough. Now, you'll want to add the um, stiff-peaked egg whites into that chocolate mixture and fold them in. And the folding helps to retain the air because that egg and chocolate mixture is going to be dense and sticky and want to stay at the bottom of the of the bowl. So you add in um, the egg whites to lighten that mixture up. And then the tricky part of this recipe, oven set at about 325, you get sheet trays. You spray these things down with cooking spray. Then you lay some parchment paper or waxed paper into the cooking sheets or the baking sheets. Then you spray the top of those with more cooking spray. You pour your batter in there, spread it out evenly, and you bake it for about 12 minutes in the oven or until a toothpick comes out clean. Now, once you have these sort of... Uh, sheet pans filled with this chocolate sponge. Um, it's it's not hard to get it out. You just uh, It should come right out of the pan, and then you'll want to turn it over and, and carefully peel off the waxed or parchment paper. Now you've got these little um, basically sheet cakes, and you can take these and do anything with them. The recipe that my mom used to do would call for rolling the whole thing up into what she called a chocolate roll. Honestly, it's quite difficult to do, and a lot of people botch it up and wind up with an ugly-looking roll. So what I like to do is take either cookie cutters that are round or just take a, a knife freeform and cut it into squares or rectangles, what have you. <clears throat> and then you're going to layer Chantilly cream. Now, that's fancy French chef talk for cream flavored with a little bit of sugar and vanilla. Nothing too fancy, but if you can find a 40% butterfat cream, which you can find at places like Costco, that's the stuff to get. Um, but you at least want a 36%. Look for a heavy cream, not a whipping cream, in my opinion. Whip that up with about a quarter teaspoon of vanilla and maybe two tablespoons of sugar. Once you have the cream very stiff, You'll just uh, take your final serving plate, put a little bit of a um, little piece of your chocolate cake on the bottom, layer in some cream, more chocolate cake, more cream, you get it. And the very top layer of chocolate cake, you want to finish with some powdered sugar. This is one of the best desserts you'll ever have. And in your case, it uses a lot of eggs. So make a double batch. You use a dozen eggs right there. Um, here's a dish that we use quite a bit, and we are hooked into, we've had chickens before and we've, you know, had to do exactly what we're telling you to do, but we get a lot of eggs from uh, local people, but, um, roast some potatoes in a, in a pan with a little bit of oil, salt and pepper, maybe some herbs and pop them in the oven when they're nice and golden brown. That's the base. You put that on a plate and then we like to take some steamed green beans with a little bit of butter, salt, and pepper, put a heaping portion of those over the potatoes, and then either poached or fried eggs on top of that. When that egg yolk breaks, kind of gets all on the beans and the potatoes, that is a delicious dish. Um, what about hard-cooked eggs in a salad? That can be a delicious thing. Also, that mustard vinaigrette goes really well with hard-cooked eggs. Now, a lot of people struggle, struggle making hard-cooked eggs. Very simple. Take a, a sauce pot, fill it up with at least a quart of water, put six eggs in cold water, by the way, and put your, your cold eggs or room temperature eggs in there. Start it off cold. That's the secret. Put it on the stove, 
bring it up to a boil. Once it boils, put a cover on it, turn off the heat, wait eight to ten minutes is the magic number. After eight to ten minutes, minutes, take the eggs out, um, run them under cold water, and um, th- the key is you don't want them to continue to cook. They're going to cook a little bit, but run them under, drain them, run them under cold water, and then put them in a bowl of cold water and let them cool off completely. Then you should have an easy time peeling them, and when you cut them in half, you're going to have nice yellow yolks, not that green-looking nasty stuff. Another thing, uh, frittata. This is Italian comfort food, great for dinner. couple of eggs in a wide-open, maybe a nonstick skillet. You put down some butter. You um, put your eggs down and any type of vegetables, whether it be bell peppers. You know what's really great is uh, zucchini and parmesan. Frittata, wonderful. And then you serve it as a big uh, round piece, and you just cut slices of it, side salad, little white wine, you're good to go. Um, What about hollandaise sauce? One of the classic sauces in the French kitchen happens to be one of the five mother sauces. And if you make hollandaise, you're going to use a lot of egg yolks. Now, basically, what it is is taking a double boiler, take a stainless steel bowl, put it on top of uh, a pot of simmering water, put in your egg yolks, maybe 10 or so, and uh, start whisking and continue whisking and whisking and whisking until you can what they call blow a rose. These eggs are going to slowly cook and get thick. If You can't just let it sit there. This is constant whisking, so no email, no phone calls, no interruptions. Whisk, whisk, whisk until it starts to thicken up. It'll it'll uh, look thicker. It'll become um, dense. And when you can go and you can blow a rose, in other words, something that's the, the form of your breath will, will keep in the eggs, you know they're done. From that point, you're taking clarified butter and you're whisking very slowly clarified butter. This is a very delicate emulsion you're trying to form to make a hollandaise sauce. There's a zillion videos on YouTube. I won't go too far into it. You can flavor them lots of different ways. But when you have a hollandaise sauce, you can serve it over vegetables. Or if you like meat, you can make a compound sauce. That means to take one of the five mother sauces and make a variation on it, you get a compound sauce. One of the classic compound sauces is Bernays sauce. That's made by taking a little teeny sauce pot with some white wine vinegar and some shallots, and you cook that and reduce it all the way down to till the shallots are soft and there's just a little bit of moisture in there. Then you add that to... Hollandaise with fresh tarragon and shazam, you've got some Bernays sauce. You grill up a nice ribeye, spoon some of that Bernays over it. You're a hero. Jerry, I hope uh, these ideas inspire you to cook with all those wonderful wonderful eggs. Congratulations on taking the step to uh, raise your own chickens can be a very, um, as far as homesteading, boy, one of the one of the first and best things you can do for self-sufficiency. Hi, this is Matt from Wisconsin. I've got a question for Chef Keith Snow. We grew an abundance of uh, pumpkins this year, mainly sugar pumpkins, um, but also, uh, you know, more Connecticut field pumpkin type pumpkins, and uh, didn't have very good luck with our squash. So the question is, uh, what can you do with pumpkin? Uh, I've made pumpkin seeds, roasted pumpkin seeds before, I've never made a pumpkin pie out of uh, real pumpkin. Uh, that's one obvious thing. Uh, just wondering if you have any other suggestions or if you have a uh, suggestion for turning uh, uh, pie pumpkins into pumpkin pies. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. 
Hey, Chef Keith Snow here from the Expert Council. Wanted to actually let me do that again. In three, two, one. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from the Expert Panel. Wanted to address Matt from Wisconsin's question about pumpkins. Well, first of all, Matt, it's uh, sad that most of your squashes didn't make it because that is a, an incredible storage crop. We've been paying a lot of attention to um, squashes that store. I actually heard Jack mention on the air about a butternut squash in the window that Dorothy was wishing he would get rid of. Uh, we did the same test a while back, and we left a butternut squash on our counter for, I would say, close to a year. And... Uh, at least over nine months, I know that, and it was fine when we ate it. So they do store really well, making an uh, making it an obvious choice for survivalists and preppers, whatever we call ourselves. Squashes are good things to grow and to buy and store. Now, um, pumpkins are another story, and they tend to be. I don't want to say easy to grow, but I know a lot of people locally here in western Montana that have successful uh, pumpkin patches. Now, they're not just good for jack-o'-lanterns, and you mentioned cooking with them. Now, um, of course, pumpkin pie is something, and pumpkin seeds, like you mentioned, uh, come to mind. We uh, just finished up the pumpkin seeds that we roasted from carving up four or five jack-o'-lanterns over Halloween. Now, um, those seeds are, are terrific. They can be used in things like moles, um, which are typically uh, different. They're kind of green pumpkin seeds, a little bit different than the kind of standard pumpkin seeds, uh, but, but they can be used in that application. Um, but as far as processing the pumpkins, it's not a very difficult to th- thing to do. You want to cut them in half, scoop out all the stringy stuff, the seeds and what have you. Cut them into manageable chunks, and you've got to peel that outer shell. Now, this is definitely a labor-intensive task, as most things in the homesteader's kitchen are, like canning and uh, peeling apples. All that kind of stuff definitely takes time and effort if you're going to be rewarded with the harvest. And um, pumpkins are no different. It definitely takes some time to peel those things. Once you've got them peeled... You'll want to steam them or boil them until they're tender. Now, depending upon how large the chunks are, how much water you have in your pot, all these type of things can uh, keep me from giving you an exact figure. But your the point of a knife will tell you or a fork when they're tender. Once they're tender, this is where the, the options start. Now, most people are used to using Libby's canned pumpkin to make a pumpkin pie, and it makes very consistent pumpkin pie. It tastes and has texture that people are used to, which is, you know, pretty, I don't want to say boring. I mean, I like a standard pumpkin pie like that, but it really lacks uh, any diversity, you know, from they, they use all the same type of pumpkins. That's a highly processed product as well. I'm not saying it's bad, and we, we definitely use it and keep it in our pantry, but um, a pumpkin pie made with fresh pumpkins of differing varieties and differing sugar and starch contents can make a more interesting pumpkin pie. Now, you'll want to spice it up um, to make it taste, you know, pumpkin-y, and that's going to be your typical pie spices like nutmeg and clove, ginger, 
uh, mace, things like that, um, make pumpkin pie taste tremendous in my opinion. So obviously you'll want to perfect pumpkin pie and you've got Thanksgiving coming. So, um, Matt in Wisconsin, there's no excuse to be using Libby's this Thanksgiving. So I expect to see, um, several pumpkin pies on your table and even some pictures posted over at facebook.com slash harvest eating. So there you go. Pumpkin pie. Now what about pumpkin cheesecake? This is something that, um, uh, honestly the, the idea and credit would go to the cheesecake factory. They do make some excellent cheesecake, but, um, it can be made at home, um, quite easily too. One of the secrets to making a good cheesecake, people get all freaked out. Oh no, it cracked on me. And that'll happen oftentimes. You can uh, counteract the cracking by cooking it over what they call in the French kitchen a bain-marie, which is basically a water bath. And what you do is take your springform pan that you're making your cheesecake in, wrap it in tin foil. Those things are not waterproof. If you put it inside of a water bath, the water will seep in and ruin your pie. So you need to carefully wrap the outside of the springform pan, and I would use heavy-duty foil. Um, and you can get that at the club stores in a larger size, much better than the one-foot wide that you get in the store. So take some heavy-duty foil, wrap your springform pan, take the whole, you know, your cheesecake filling, which is basically going to be your pumpkin, eggs, and cream cheese. Try to find one that's not so loaded up with gum that it's like silly putty. And unfortunately... Most of the brands, particularly store brands, are so loaded down with uh, guar and carrageen gum that they have a texture like silly putty. Very shameful. So if you can find a good one, congratulations. But when you make your, your filling, you're going to use eggs, pumpkin, spices, things like that, cream cheese. Um, you'll get it into your springform pan. Take the whole thing and place it inside of a water bath. That's a larger rimmed container with at least an inch or two of water. And you'll put it in there and you'll bake the whole thing together. Don't start out with cold water. Put in like room temperature water and um, then you'll bake it. And don't bake it fast. Bake it a little slow. I would say about a 325 oven until a toothpick pulls out carefully. Now, that should help eliminate the cracks. But... If a crack happens, you don't need to freak out because you're going to hide it like this. This is what my German mother-in-law, who makes one of the finest pumpkin pies anywhere, does. She will take that pie when it comes out of the oven, leave the oven on, and then she takes good old daisy sour cream and puts roughly, roughly, um, I would say a quarter to three-eighths of an inch thick layer. And what she does is take the sour cream, whips a little sugar into it, and then covers the entire, leaves a little rim, maybe a half-inch rim around the circumference of the pumpkin pie. But she puts a bunch of this uh, sour cream on it, and then that goes back into the oven for about another 10 minutes. And what happens is the sour cream cooks a little bit, and it'll set up and... And then it has just a, a tremendous texture and all the cracks are, are hidden. So you get a pie that's kind of white on top, but you have to cook it long enough for the sour cream to set up. Um, but once you do that, that's going to eliminate any cracks. So don't stress about cracks in your cheesecake. Next up, spice cake, right? We talked about making sure you have a pie, um, a, a pumpkin pie on the table because it's Thanksgiving and you grew them. Christmas is coming, right? Instead of 
I don't know, does anybody actually use those fruit and nut cakes anymore? I used to work for UPS. This is a little secret. Years ago, I worked with UPS uh, as a basically, a, I think, an 18-year-old kid. I would ride around with the driver. I was a driver's assistant. And the one driver I rode around, his name was Gordon. And the guy drank a lot on the job, by the way. And he also would never deliver spice cakes. This was during the holiday and I remember being on the route with him, and at the end of the day, we'd we'd have a collection of these little, um, you know, white cardboard boxes with those kind of spice cakes that people send, you know, fruit and nut cakes for Christmas. He would pull over near the stream, and he would just whip them out the door into the stream. I never forget that. Every time I think of a spice cake, I remember Wacky Gordon, the UPS driver. Now, um he had a point. Those things are pretty miserable, but with all of your pumpkin, you can make delicious pumpkin spice cake. And this is going to be a basic kind of a moist batter cake with eggs, lots of pumpkin, a lot of the aforementioned pumpkin pie spices, things like currants or raisins. And you can bake it up in loaves and take those loaves and wrap them up and, um, you know, you can freeze them, so make them, wrap them up in foil, and then put some type of, uh, you know, decorative bow on them, and you can give them away as tasty Christmas presents. And you don't have to give, you can buy smaller, um, loaf pans at, uh, at the store. Instead of giving them a standard loaf pan, you can give a smaller one, but that's a great way to use up your pumpkins. Um, what about making pumpkin ravioli? Now you can do this by making your own, your own ravioli dough. Um, you can also buy pre-made dough, um, or you can use those lasagna, those, those no-boil lasagna sheets, and those can be softened up and then folded over, and you can make ravioli. But I, honestly, I just look up on, on YouTube a recipe for ravioli, use some fresh eggs, make a nice uh, thin pasta, and then you can make a filling with your um, steamed pumpkin. You, of course, you want to flavor it up, a little Parmesan cheese, olive oil, salt and pepper, maybe some uh, fresh thyme in there. And then you can make brown butter. Now, brown butter is money with pumpkin, pumpkin squash, uh, pumpkin or squash ravioli, basically butter that's cooked slowly on a skillet until it starts to go nutty brown. And um, you can put a little sugar in there if you need to, to make it uh, even more interesting. Nuts like ground up hazelnuts are terrific in there. And then definitely uh, sage, fresh sage. You toss in that brown butter and then you take your steamed um, pumpkin ravioli, toss them in the brown butter, a little bit of Parmesan cheese. Voila. Wonderful. Uh, risotto is another classic way to use up pumpkin. You take your pumpkin and instead of steaming it, I would roast it. So you get it all um, peeled and cubed, roasted on a sheet tray, a little olive oil, salt and pepper when it's got a lot of roasty color and it's tender. Then you can add it. You make a, a classic risotto with arborio rice. And towards the end, you throw in your uh, roasted pumpkin. Again, I'd go flavor that thing with some sage and Parmesan cheese. That can be wonderful. Pumpkin soup, very similar to something like a butternut squash soup. Can't beat it. It's delicious. Um, pumpkin is great with curry flavors. So you can make all types of, like a spinach and pumpkin curry, which you could use coconut milk and lime and kefir lime leaves, um, ginger, cilantro, lemongrass, pumpkin, and cook it all up in a cauldron with chicken. And uh, that's a pumpkin curry, basically. 
if you have any specific questions on it, Matt, because I'm going over it so quick, feel free to email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com. But those are some ways to use um, your pumpkin. Another terrific thing to do would be to take those no-boil lasagna sheets that I mentioned. You can use the kind that you have to boil, too. It's just a little more work. And make a pumpkin lasagna. Now, this is something uh, you take your mashed pumpkin. Now, again, if you're going to use it as a filling, you can't just throw it in there with cheese and pasta and expect it to taste good. You've got to put it in a bowl first, and you've got to season it up a little bit with some butter and some salt and pepper at the very least um, to make it flavorful. You want these fillings. There's nothing worse than dead flavor, so you want it to be uh, flavorful. But you can take those lasagna sheets and layer your pumpkin with some uh, – go with a cheese like Gruyere, which is a, a very sharp Swiss cheese, wonderful stuff. Um, maybe a cave-age Gruyere, a little bit of that, plus a little bit of mozzarella too for some stringy wonderfulness. And make a white sauce, a bechamel, which is also one of the five French mother sauces, basically a white sauce. Super easy to make. There's a video somewhere on harvesteating.com for that. And then you could layer squash with lasagna sheets and the cheese I mentioned and some of this white sauce. Definitely want to use sage leaves and nutmeg in this one. You bake it all up, and uh, boy, that is, for people that expect lasagna to have uh, ground-up meat or sausage and red sauce, this is a huge departure. But for somebody that's... uh, that's heavy with pumpkins, Matt. This is going to be a great thing to try. So hopefully I've inspired you to do some things with the pumpkins. Now, pie is great, but there's lots of other ways to cook with that. And just forget that it's a pumpkin and pretend it's a butternut squash or a sweet potato. And um, it may help you to, to think more about the possibilities. Also, it freezes tremendously well. You can steam it all the way down or just... Um, Get it peeled and into chunks. You can, uh, I would recommend vacuum packing it if you've got a food saver or similar, but they freeze really well. So that's another way to, to use it up. Uh, very healthy, by the way. Pumpkin is a healthy food. So, uh, congratulations. Hopefully, um, you're going to find some things to do with it. Now, now while I've, while I've got everybody's attention, I wanted to first of all thank you all for listening and being so supportive of the Harvest Eating Podcast. Do call in more questions for me. Also consider checking out my new pasta sauces. Those are in a pre-order mode. We're going to be making them November 21st and made with all American-grown ingredients. Thoughtful Harvest pasta sauce is really cool. You can check those out over at harvesteating.com. And another special for the month of November, free shipping using the coupon code NOVEMBER over at harvesteating.com for all, all orders over $100. So check that out. I appreciate everybody's support. And I hope you guys have fun cooking with eggs. Take care, everyone. Hey, Jack, Melissa in Illinois. I have a question about safety deposit boxes or safe deposit boxes. My husband and I have been contemplating getting a safe deposit box to sort some of our portable assets off-site. Right now we have them pretty much all in our house. And I didn't know with all of the stuff coming from the NSA and even the IRS and all the stuff that's been going on, if you'd had any other pointers or if you'd changed your stance on them a little bit, I know that the truth lies somewhere in the middle of the overblown and the and the absolute, um, but I just wanted to get your take on it again. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye. 
All right, well, safe deposit boxes are not a bad option, but they're probably not as anonymous as a lot of people would believe because they were pretty damn anonymous not too long ago. Remember after 9-11 when your government decided they needed to protect us and uh, they told us they needed to do certain things to be able to protect us and they put this great big giant monstrosity together and then even though this was a pig that trampled on human rights and individual uh, civil rights within the United States and our constitutionally protected rights, by the way, under the Bill of Rights, which did not establish those rights but recognized and protect them and they wanted to shit all over our rights, well, the way you do that in the government is you put together this monstrous pig of a piece of legislation, and then you call it something that sounds good, like the Patriot Act. How would you ever be opposed to the Patriot Act? Aren't you a good patriot? And then all our dumbass right-wing radio idiots went on the air and told people, oh, it's a good thing. It's the Patriot Act. And, and now they talk about how bad it is because, you know, their guy's not in charge anymore. And, and this is, this is, you know, I'll save my thoughts on the dichotomy for the last question for me today, but... This is just another example of it doesn't matter who's in charge. They're all screwing you. And how does that all relate to this question? Well, in this giant monstrosity piece of crap that should be repealed, known as the Patriot Act, there were some things in there that just didn't seem like they really had anything to do with what they were talking about because that's how you write legislation when you're a piece of crap in government. You put all kinds of things you always wanted to do into a great big bill that nobody's going to read before they vote on it. One of the things that they did inside the Patriot Act, which you can't oppose unless you're not a patriot, of course, was to redefine financial relationship with financial institution to include some things that it did not include prior to the Patriot Act. One of these was the safe deposit box. Now, this isn't a horrible thing, but it's certainly not a good thing, and there's probably no need for it, and I'll get to why as we get to the end of this. But basically, this is how it worked. A financial relationship prior to the Patriot Act um, was defined as an account with a bank. Okay, So you went to the bank, you opened a savings account, a merchant account, a checking account, a business account, a personal account, a passbook account, a, had a certificate of deposit, whatever. These were all financial relationships with the financial institution and subject to oversight of banking committees and, and viewing by the government and things like that. But if you got a safe deposit box, well, that was not a financial relationship with a financial institution. A lot of people get safe deposit boxes to keep important documents in that are not money or to keep family heirlooms or jewels or even, you know, pictures in the modern day and age. People would might put backups to their computer files and things like that into a safe deposit box. It's not always about money. It's not always about silver and jewelry or the jewelry that's in there might be very non-valuable to anybody except the person putting it in there. This was all understood that basically what you were buying from a bank when you purchased a safe deposit box was secure storage. And it was treated like that until the Patriot Act came in and redefined it as a financial relationship. This makes it subject to the same scrutiny as any other financial relationship you'd have with an institution. That said, that doesn't mean they know what's in your box, and it does not give them the freedom to just come through and like audit all the boxes. They, they can't do that. Um, it's, it's just that, so here's the reality. The, 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 uh, the likelihood that your government would wholesale just start going through every safe deposit box in America is about a billion to one against it. 
What they might do is come up with a list of people that they think might particularly be violating things, and you might end up on that list and they might go. But you'd have to almost be individually targeted for this to really matter so far. Okay, so if you were subject to some type of government scrutiny due to some type of a audit or basically facing some sort of federal charges uh, because they thought you stole money or something like that, then they could, you know, use the streamlined process of the Patriot Act to gain access to your safe deposit box a little bit quicker than they could have in the past because they could have always done that. It was still considered a personal asset and subject to some level of inspection. But now it's a little bit easier, and they can get in a little bit quicker, including things like if you are subject of a secret investigation and do not know that you're the subject of a secret investigation, they could go down to a financial institution, invoke this power, and ask your bank to let them in. Your bank may or may not have to let them in, but in most instances where this has happened, the bank has just let them in, at least that we know about. So that's changed the nature of a lot of things with a safe deposit box. But it's still a very inexpensive way to have a very secure storage facility. Now, you might be thinking, well, if anything ever starts to go really hairy, then I'll just go get my stuff out of the box. Most people that think that way have never actually had one because you don't, you realize there's one step in there that you're not thinking of. And that is, you go down to your safe deposit box and say, I'd like to access my box, please. And they say, well, Mr. Smith, yes, no problem. And they say, sign this little book right here. And then you take your key and they take a key and they open the thing and you both turn your key and then you pull your little sleeve out and they have a little room you can go to be all private and confidential and do whatever you want. And everything's really good. Oh, wait, the book. There's the part. So if you were the subject of some sort of investigation, either legitimate or illegitimate, as some part of some group thing that they came after, that you know, the people say will never happen, it certainly could, um, they would know, well, Mr. Smith, why did you go to the bank on Friday at 3 p.m. on the you know, 7th of, of, of October and, and, and accessed your safe deposit box? And we see that you were in at, at 3.45 and you left at 4 o'clock. You were there 15 minutes. What were you doing? Now, of course, you can say none of your business, but it's another leverage point. And they would have access to that information with or without the Patriot Act. But again, it's about streamlining the access, making it easier, less justification, less burden of proof upon the government to gain that access. Where normally to search your safe deposit box, they would have to get the same type of a warrant necessary to search your home. Uh, they could based on my understanding of the Patriot Act, gain access to your safe deposit box the same way that they would gain access to your financial records, your bank accounts, where they would not necessarily need a warrant, depending on what was going on. Or they could get a warrant from one of their own special courts that no one is allowed to ask any questions of. Right? See, like if, if they want to come and just, like, the police think you're growing pot, Okay, in your house, and, and they want to come to your house and look. They have to go to a judge and build a case. Okay, a, an officer has to be on record as requesting the warrant, and the judge has to be on record as signing off on the warrant. So when they do some stupid shit, like they did down in Arlington, and they raided that eco village because for pot and all that was there was okra, both the judge and the officer kind of have their ass in a sling. And once or twice, you might be able to make it go away and say, but if you're constantly doing this, you're going to end up in a lot of trouble as a public official. But 
with this Patriot Act provision, this can be done by a secret court that's not subject to accountability. It can be requested by a government agent who's not subject to having his name publicly revealed as part of a public investigation. This is why the Patriot Act is a piece of shit. Those are fundamental rights that have been taken from you while people like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity told you it was good for you and now they have some problems with it. But they never say it's the Patriot Act where these problems come from. They just talk about the abuses that Obama's doing and they never talk about the roots of the power. How these types of laws passed under Bush powered these things. And it's because we all think that they're two different sides of two different coins. And what they are is a couple mafia families that are all part of the same scam. I'll save that one for later, though. But there you go. That's the problem. All right. So I'm not saying not to use, but I'm saying be aware of the problem and then make a decision for yourself. The most secure storage I could advise you to have with the most direct control is a floor safe, something that's cored into the concrete slab of your house, that's fireproof, almost impossible to break into, very concealable, but it is kind of expensive where a safe deposit box can be had for 20 bucks a year or less. And it's very, very secure. And, it, and as long as you're not expecting to be the subject of a, of a federal investigation or investigated as a potential terrorist, it's, it's still relatively private, but it's not as private as it was before the Patriot Act. Let's take another call. Hi, my name is Cecia from Northeast Oklahoma, and I have a question for either Ben Falk or Paul Wheaton. Um, I... Uh, and think about installing some hugel beds in uh, the raised pipe now and hugel beds in a vineyard and I'm looking for a few guidelines. The vineyard has 320 vines on almost an acre in various stages of maturity up to six years. There are 16 rows of 20 plants running north and south. The vineyard is situated on a hillside with a high point on the southeast corner. I'm in the process of installing buried irrigation mines and would like to put these beds in place along with the irrigation mines. We also keep bees, so I'm looking to install flowering plants like blackberries and strawberries, etc. Do I need to leave breaks in the beds to allow some water runoff to the next row down? What are some of the plants you suggest to go in these multiple beds? Will this type of bed do harm to my existing vines? Thank you for any input you provide. Thanks. Well, given that Paul Wheaton has probably the closest relationship that anybody in North America has with Sepp Holzer, who is uh, not the creator of Hugel culture, but probably the father of the modern Hugel culture movement, and that Paul has probably done more with Hugel culture than just about anybody else uh, to make it known in North America, I figured I'd give this one to Paul. This is a complicated one. Paul's going to give you his assessment, and I'm going to come back and give you some additional things from my viewpoint. Well, uh, this is going to be painful. <laughs> this is Paul Wheaton on the um, uh, Expert Council from Permies.com. I'm here with Jocelyn Campbell. Hello. <laughs> and we're going to try and answer this question. And and I've I got to say that I put it off a couple of days because it's it's just one of those that's really hard. Um, and I think uh, this is like one of the most painful things. Although usually the the question is presented as like I have an orchard and how do I make it permaculture. And so basically the question is, is I have a perennial monocrop and I want to call it permaculture, but permaculture is far more polyculture and not so monocropish. Well, the, 
more specifically, it's the question about hugel beds in between the rows of a vineyard. See, now I don't think they're saying in between the rows. It's like how do you how do you mix in the hugel culture um, with with the monocrop? And 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 my my the, the the best solution, which no one will ever go for for an orchard or a vineyard, is going to be you got to take out 90% of it and replace it with polyculture and other species. Um, but nobody will ever do that um, because it's like they've got so many years invested in getting as far as they've gotten. So she had a lot of a lot of the uh, the vines that she's got are six years old, mm-hmm. and so she's you know it's like take out ninety percent and and introduce diversity, and she's going to probably not do that. Right. So the closest thing that you can get is to introduce diversity in between the rows, um, but but then it's kind of like okay, well the only space that you have is between the rows to put in your hugel culture, and that doesn't work either because then how do you access the vines, you could go every other row, but then when you're harvesting the grapes, they're oftentimes on the other side and they would become difficult to reach. So, um, I think this is a long term, like, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that is to set a long term goal, like, here's where we want to be 10 years from now, and then try to move in that, in that general direction. And, and another thing is, I want to say the, the complete answer to this question would fill a book. So, so we're just going to try and squeeze it into a few minutes. Right. She said she wanted raised hugel beds, which some people in the south like the buried hugel beds. But she's not that far south. She still has a fairly cold climate. Yeah, we had to look up Oklahoma climate <laughs> and see. It does yeah. freeze there. It does get below zero. Yeah. Um, so uh, um, that was the other thing is, is like, well, do we want to hold cold? Or do we want to keep the cold away? Because it is a sloped, uh, it is a sloped thing. It is a uh, the slope faces the uh, see the high southeast corner, so it is a northwest facing slope, northish. And uh, rows run north and south, she said. Right. And so rows, of course, that's kind of a, a knee jerk reaction for me. I don't want it to be in rows, but. Well, and I'm wondering, a lot of what you try to channel is the frost, and then another thing that hugel beds can also stack a function in doing is blocking the wind, and so we don't really know wind directions in this situation. I, I prefer to use the phrase breaking wind because it meets my humor <laughs> needs. That's right. I forgot. <laughs> it's, it's a wind break uh, for breaking wind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so... I want what what I want. So when I think of um, okay, I want to grow a lot of grapes. That's my thing. I'm into the grapes, and so I'm trying to think like okay, out of this acre, ten percent of the acre is going to be grapes, and I'll I'll keep them in. I'll have a few bunches where I might have five vines relatively close together, and and then lots of diversity, and another bunch of like five vines. But you're, you know, you're gonna cut your, uh, the number of grapes by, um, uh, grape vines by a factor of 10. So there's only be one tenth, but hopefully they'll produce 50%, um, more per vine. And you're answering a question she didn't ask. She wants to add hugel beds to her existing vines. And you're kind of saying, make a permaculture. That's how you're, Answering oh, yeah. a question she didn't ask. Well, and it's kind of like so. So when Jack and I were together in in that event up in Helena, then then this is kind of like the argument that Jack and I had back and forth many many times. Um, it was a city function, and they were saying, 
you know, here are, here are the parameters you must fit within. And, and Jack was like trying to design permaculture stuff to fit within those parameters. And my focus was more on like, I don't like your parameters and I'm going to whine incessantly about your parameters. And, um, I'm not, I refuse to have landscaping, just old school landscaping and call it permaculture. So, um, uh, all right. The thing is, is like, I mean, well, one thing is you might lose some vines once in a while. And, and then those places, it's like, okay, I'm going to start to introduce hugel culture. She talked about burying irrigation lines, which was another thing is like, I prefer to see a goal be, how can I eliminate irrigation? I mean, as you're putting in those irrigation lines, that's gotta be crazy expensive. And so it's like, what can we do so you can have all the wonderful grapes that you want and a bunch of other stuff? And you don't have to go to all the work of irrigating. Now, Jack, uh, on Jack's show, I don't remember, it must be podcast number 900 or something. Then, uh, he and I did a podcast on how to replace irrigation with permaculture. And so maybe go back to that one. But a lot of it was build your hookah culture tall and, um, and, and then have it be interesting shapes to help block the wind, break the wind, um, reduce wind, uh, because wind is desiccating. Um, and I, I, but that it's not going to fit with all the rows and stuff. Um, I think a couple of things. One is, yeah, you want to try and break the wind. The second is, is like any time there's frost moving down your landscape, you want that to go right on by. Gra- grapes can be very sensitive to frost depending on which varieties that you're raising. Um, and and so usually people want to raise varieties of grape where it's like kind of on the border and and frost can be a big problem uh so if you've got cold air moving through your system you want to you want to have it keep right on going by now with a north-ish facing slope um you'll be tempted to put in frost or not frost you'll be tempted to put in sun traps to collect the sun and have some warm spots but those are also going to be on north facing slope those are also going to be frost pockets and you want to avoid those so, yes, I'm dodging the question in a big way. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to think of like a long-term plan of, of, um, trying to introduce texture to the landscape and, and try, uh, to make it less of a monocrop, yeah. add as much diversity as you can. Um, and it's, and it's going to be something where it's like maybe, maybe it's possible that this person has another acre, you know, next door to this acre. And, and they can try it the, 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 the permaculture way. I mean, I think one of the things that you can gain is that you can have grapes, uh, that then take on a lot of the flavors of the neighboring plants. And- well, she mentioned the hugel culture as a goal of introducing more biodiversity and more bee forage. She, she mentioned, uh, blackberries and strawberries and, um, getting those in the hugel beds. But I, I'm curious if there could be a long-term plan of, like you said, if a vine dies out, I mean, what section of the row would that be? Um, uh, in a six, eight-foot section, would she be able to take that vine out and replace that with hugel culture right there and just gradually over time add in biodiversity that way and hugel yeah. culture that way? I That's my thinking, too, um, is... is um, uh, where there's die out or along the edges or the acre next door or something like that. I, I, I like the idea of implanting the idea of what could be if you were to start over again or what could be for whatever reason. What, what could be the best grape polyculture that, that, that you could have in a permaculture style? And then once you have that, 
then you can start um, uh, kind of moving towards that when opportunity presents itself. Now, when it comes to bees, just Mm -hmm. before I forget, Mm -hmm. I mean, I could talk for hours about the way that permaculture systems for bees is better than organic, which is better than conventional and all the whys and all the details. But I want to plant two seeds just real quick. One, three season nectar sources. Yes. So, so you're talking about adding diversity in bloom. And, and so it's like, try and fill that out with as much diversity of bloom as you can. And there are some plants that are just better than others. A black locust would be one of your favorite things. Uh, another thing is the bee hut. I put a video up on YouTube uh, a few weeks ago, um, where a, a woman had a bee hut. She just had a shelter and put the beehives in there. And bee huts uh, typically uh, produce five times more honey, you know, per year. So you'll have lots of honey for the bees to get through the winter, plus a, a good crop for yourself, and just just have fewer hives. Like you know, don't try to to have like twenty, thirty hives. Instead, try to have like four or or if on an acre, you probably don't need more than two. And if the bee, if the if the nectar source is really close and really plentiful, then they don't forage very far. They stay close, and then they're not going off and getting all that toxic gick from other places. So I'm sorry, I, inter- I interrupted you. No, no, I think that sounds great, and that was my thought as well. With with those spring blooming berries, um, that's that's very short season forage for the bees, but. The, when you when we're going back to the hugel beds, and she may be too locked in with her vineyard and with her acreage to be able to do this, but when you're talking, I've loved how you've talked at other properties about putting berms or hugel beds to um, have the frost just flow around, and so. I'm imagining on this property, if she were able to, and if she had the space to, some hugel buds at that south end. Um, the top edge, right, the, the highest top points. Edge, which in this case happens to be south from the sounds of it. Uh, some curved hugel beds to get that frost to flow around the vineyard rows, which, which would be amazing. And then also, and then I think the second place to focus would be the most desiccating winds put hugel there good place to start yeah if you are going to start somewhere and if you have the space and it's not going to impede you know the other things that are going on with the grapes right i think that when you introduce irrigation by the way you're going to reduce the flavor of your grapes and if you're going to make a wine you're going your your wine is going to be more like water it's not going to have a, a rich flavor Although I have to say, <laughs> I don't drink wine. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's like, so I don't really, but your grape juice <laughs> is going to be weak. <laughs> it's going to yeah. taste like Kool-Aid without enough flavoring in it. Yeah. And that's a really hard space for people to wrap their head around. I know um, vineyards, they, they follow the bricks of the berries very carefully. They follow, you know, and monitor all of that so carefully and, and and I think vines that are used to irrigation every year, it would take a while for them to not be used to the irrigation, wean them off that, and I don't know how that would work or how successful that might be. So I think it's it, that's a challenging space, I have to admit. So uh, uh, I guess this is a non-answer to the question. Um, uh, um, maybe it'll help to move things in a good direction. But this is like one of the most difficult tasks that I have is when people ask, what do I do with my 
uh, permaculture orchard or my permaculture vineyard, but both of these phrases are oxymorons. So, right, and there's so much more going on with the site that uh, it, really the caller didn't have time to explain in their phone call, and we don't have time to address. I mean, you know how much space is between between right. the rows. What you know, what what can the grape roots handle? I, you know, there's just can we put animals in the system? <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, there's a, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's there's uh, I want again this I mean hours hours uh, weeks uh, months to talk through this. Yeah, um, and it would easily fill a book or two. It's not so, as simple as we said. I think before we started recording, it's not as simple as just putting Googles down every other row. Yeah, it's not going to work. There's there's more to it than that. If you're really going for a permaculture solution. Um, and and putting hugelkultur beds in rows even still bothers me. Um, you you need to add rich texture to the landscape to really get things to be better. But I think you know moving in that general direction, it will. I think people will notice improvements over time. And I would I I think it'd be exciting for her to try a small plot like a quarter of an acre plot next door to it and and do it full on permaculture and see if the grapes that come out of that have better flavor. Right. And just going back to the hugel beds and rows again, I like how you've done your different designs where it's kind of like these curvy shapes that nest together so that the wind or water can go between, but you're still getting the full benefit of that berm or the hugel. And and so kind of what was done in Dayton at the Sepulzer project there. A little bit. uh, Yeah, little curvy S-shape kind of things that nest together. And when you're penned in by a vineyard, a typical straight row vineyard, you you would not have the space to do six foot tall curvy hugo cultures. It's right. just not gonna happen. Right. Sorry that we didn't give you the answer you're probably looking for, but hopefully we've said enough that might give you a possible future direction. Um, <laughs> uh, feel free to, to, to try again <laughs> with more questions and more information and we'll see if we can help you some more. Bye. Bye. I, I definitely want to add some things to this, and this is one of those things where it would be kind of fun to have Paul Wheaton and I have a, a long discussion about conversion of existing properties to permaculture. And I, I, like Paul's a guy that I love, and he's a friend, so we can disagree with each other and even pick on each other a little bit and be okay with each other. Uh, I want to preface that right now because I'll say some things I completely disagree with. And Paul Wheaton is probably the person that I, I agree with the most on permaculture of anybody in the world. Um, and in some ways, he's also the person I disagree with the most on permaculture more than anyone in the world. So my first thing when I look at this is is to take a completely different viewpoint from Paul because, well, he's already done his view. So if I just try to expound on or add to his view, we don't learn anything and we don't expand anything. And with that, I have to admit two advantages that I have over Paul. Okay, two. One, I am not a student of a permaculturist the way that he is. I am a student of all permaculturists. And what I mean by that is Paul has, as his real mentor in life, Sepp Holzer. And Paul has a definite attachment to Sepp and Sepp's methodologies. It doesn't mean that he doesn't see the genius in people like Lawton or uh, Toby Hemingway or, you know, Alan Savory or anybody else. It just means that he's going to come at the world from Sepp Holzer glasses. Whereas I could give a crap who I get my information from. I don't analyze any of these guys. I have a lot of respect 
for them, but I have no idolization of anybody, so therefore I look at what everything does. The next advantage I have is I was able to, after hearing Paul's entire answer, go listen to the question again. And actually, I only did it once, but if I wanted to listen to it five times, listen to Paul's answer five times. That gives me a distinct advantage. The next thing is that I believe, Paul might get pissed, but I believe I am far more a student of hard, cut-and-dry, Mollison permaculture design than Paul is. Paul is more of a Holzer, just did his thing with no knowledge of Bill's work. Um, and therefore, when you look at what Sepp does, or you read his writing and his books and everything, it's all about nature and functional relationships, but almost none of the the true Molisonian or even Holgram-based principles are there, and nothing about zones. Okay, Nothing about zones. And this is, I think, where people that come at it from Paul's viewpoint lose it. Zone three. Okay, We look at designing a property. Zone three is where we put our broad acre crops, whether it be corn, which would be an annual, or sorghum, or amaranth, or something like that. We still do a lot of polycultural things, but that's the place for large-scale systems. So if we just take a look at this property, and she says she's got an acre, now I guarantee you there is no way that this person has just one square acre and it's just done, right? There's other pieces of land involved. It's not like she has a square acre with four roads on it and nobody else. We know there's other land. So we now have decided, whether it was intent or by accident, that this acre is a zone three and to be treated like a zone three, and it's going to be cropped like a zone three. That does not mean we can't introduce culture or polyculture in some way. The next place I completely disagree with Paul is that you always need the goal of eliminating irrigation. I, I get absolutely sick of hearing it. When you can and when it makes sense, then do it. God bless you for it, but do not be afraid of it. So if you have the budget and the ability to put in irrigation, Go forth and irrigate. Don't overdo the irrigation, though. Make the plant work. And grapes in particular, especially if you're growing them for the purpose of wine, when they struggle some, they produce a better grape. If you look at something like Gamay, which is a grape used to make um, Beaujolais, uh, Beaujolais uh, Nouveau, which is a very traditional wine you might be drinking sometime soon. Uh, Louis Chateau is probably the most famous of this grape. It's a young wine, and it's grown from this Gamay grape, and it's nice and fruity, and it just goes perfect with, guess what? Turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce. Okay, These grapes grow on hillsides that are very rocky, uh, not very fertile, and they have that intense flavor because they have to work. So that's where Paul's answer of mitigating irrigation makes sense, but... If your difference is thriving healthy vineyard with irrigation or not thriving healthy vineyard without irrigation, I go with the thriving healthy irrigated vineyard. Just to irrigate when the plants need it and learn more about being a good uh, you know, runner of a vineyard. And treat your vineyard like your zone three. Okay. Now, where do we put our hugel culture into this situation then? Well, Maybe it's just me, but when you give me something like a one-acre dimension, the first thing I do to myself is think permaculture, edge, edge, border, border, edge. Okay, how many feet of linear feet of border is there in a one-acre area, whether it's square or oval or rectangular? When we add it all up, it's about 1,450 feet. That's 
1400 feet if we if we divide that by three we get over 480 yards of of hugel culture that could just go around the circumference yes you'd want to leave breaks i love the way paul got sep who's never acknowledged it by the way and he should kick sep in the ass for this to the project in Dayton to put bends and curves into the hugel culture so if you took hugel culture and went mostly around your vineyard and put this bending, sweeping, it would be like you would walk into it, and it would be like this, this one-acre living room vineyard surrounded by these great big culture mounts, which will cut your wind. Now, Paul's right. You have to be mindful. Are you going to dam up frost? So you have to think about how your wind flows, how your cold builds up, and how your cold flows down your slope. And you want to make damn sure that where the cold drops to, it's open and that it can get out there. So we can't use all 484 yards that we probably could, but by bending them, we'll get more anyway. So if we built this thing with most of the Hugo culture actually circumnavigating, being mindful of blocking wind and leaving places for your frost to get out, we do a lot And then we have to think about this way. Hugo culture mounds have what? Dun, 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 two sides. That's right. You don't get one side, you get two. So now we have an entire system of multiple microclimates being created, and we have over a 480-yard hugel. We have over five, what, 500 and, no, I'm sorry, uh, 960 yards of planning surface. And if we do great big meter tall, I mean, we're talking a mat more space to plant into hoogles than probably you've taken with vines. And you've stuck to this zoning and your, your, your hoogles are now defining your zones. Okay. Uh, because your hoogle is kind of circling. It's the edge of your zone three in your design. Now we still might. Find some places within the rows or breaks of, of plantings of grapes where you might come in and put some hoogles or even other things. And you're right to be thinking this way. Blackberry, strawberry, herbs, things that are low-growing. If you have big hoogle mounds, you've got to step them off your grapes enough. Your grapes need sun to ripen. That's why vineyards are laid out in rows, one of the big reasons. It's more so than many other plants. There has to be enough light in to get good growth development and ripening of your fruit. Too much we can scald, but grapes have these great big things called leaves that take care of a lot of that for us. So that's how I would design it. And this is what I would add. And this is why I say sometimes Paul doesn't listen enough. So one of the things I learned from Dave Jackie, who we tried to talk about yesterday, and Paul didn't want to hear it. Um, sorry, Paul. Truth. So I learned from Dave Jackie to never think of a guild the same way again. I always thought of guilds as these collections of plants that supported each other with different functions, which is what it is. But I always thought of guild and polyculture being synonymous. So in other words, if I had a polyculture, I could kind of define this area, and everything in there was a polyculture, and hopefully some of those elements were gilding together. And those guilds needed to be relatively small size. And it's interesting to me that this thing I learned about, Dave, actually applied to blackberries and grapes and vineyards. So there was this thing going on in California where they had these organic vineyards and some were doing really good and some were doing just okay. 
And the ones that were doing just okay had lower yields. And the reason they had lower yields is there was this leaf hopper. And this leaf hopper would come in and eat the leaves of the grapes, robbing of some of its energy from its solar collection, and the grapes would survive. But of course, since they had less solar collectors, they had less energy, less to put in the grapes, lower yield. And then some of these other organic vineyards growing the same grapes, not that far away, doing everything pretty much the same way on their property, had standard heavy yields without the problems from the leafhopper. But neither one was using poisons or culture, anything. And they couldn't figure out why. Why is this working? What they found out is that blackberries, which leafed out much earlier than the grapes, attracted a leafhopper that was very similar to the one that went after the grapes. And that a predator, a leafhopper predator, would come to the blackberries and he would eat all the little leafhoppers that went to the, to the blackberries. And then he would be fruitful and multiply. And because there were blackberries, he would stick around. He'd stick around. So once he stuck around for a while, he would go, now the blackberries have kind of moved on. I've eaten all the little blackberry leafhoppers. I know, check those grapes out. I'll go over there and I'll eat those little hoppers and their populations were up and strong because they fed in the spring on the blackberry leaf hoppers and then they ate the grape leaf hoppers later in the year and they were still there. Where other vineyards didn't have enough blackberries around. So those leaf hoppers came in the spring or leaf hopper predator came in the spring, found nothing to eat and went somewhere else. Guess where? Where the blackberries were. But guess how close blackberry stands needed to be to have this effect on a vineyard within four miles. The guild created between the blackberries and the grapes and the leafhoppers and the leafhopper predators could be as big as four miles. So I'm thinking if you had a zone three primary vineyard surrounded by culture with much polyculture, lots of flowers and things for your bees, blackberry being one that's great, by the way, you'd get a much magnified effect on this. So we don't have to give up our straight row vineyard if we're designing it holistically into a five-zone permaculture design. And this would just be one way that you would do it. So, Paul, love to hear your thoughts on how that one worked out. Um, and I think it's much, and this is the thing, Paul's stuck on Paul's desires. I think as a designer, we have to think more about our clients' desires. And while I like the concept of the long-term plan and all, and all the things Paul said, I think that we can actually accommodate something like a one-acre vineyard if we get creative and understand zone planning, zone implementation, and edge structure, and how much edge there really is. Again, over 900 yards of planting and a culture system that more or less follows the edges of the vineyard. And that way we create a lot of the effect that we're looking for, a lot of the functional relationships we're looking for, and we can still have our grapes and manage them in a very traditional, very holistic, very natural way. The grapes have been cultivated for thousands and thousands of years. Let's take another one. Jack, Brandon from Virginia. Um, I would like to hear your opinion about carrying a gun in and around the house. Do you do it? I have to assume you do if you carry. I've been, I'm new to the carry thing and I'm reading a lot of reasons for it, but also having a hard time convincing people that it's necessary. And I would just like your opinion. Thanks. Bye. Okay, so 
I'm going to guess that there's probably female energy in here saying, oh, that's not necessary. Okay, so you know what's not necessary? Air conditioning in your car is not necessary, but it's nice to have, and on a hot day it's even nicer to have. You know what's not necessary? It's what's not necessary is a spare tire for your car, but when it goes flat, it, it, it's nice to have. It, it's, what's not necessary for your car is uh, jumper cables, but when you're dead on the side of the road or see somebody else that is, and you can jump their car and get them going, it's nice to have. What's not necessary is air conditioning in your house, but it's nice to have. No, nor is uh, essential heat necessary in your house. There's other ways you could get by, but it's nice to have. It's not necessary to have flushing toilets, but bo you see what I'm saying? 90% of what we choose to have in our lives today is not necessary. So the whole is it necessary question, we can just put to the side and go, until we're going to apply that to everything in our lives, we're not going to worry about whether it's necessary or not on a day-to-day -day basis. But let's look at the consequences of not having it when it does become necessary for one minute. If it's net not if we don't have our air conditioning and it's really really hot for one minute, we're hot for one minute until our air conditioner comes back on. If we need to have our jumper cables and don't have them for one minute and somehow magically they appear or somebody else brings some by one minute later and jumps the car off, we had to stay put for one minute. If we don't have a spare tire, maybe we have to stick around long enough for the guy from AAA to come and tow our vehicle or, or bring us something that we can fix our tire with or thumb our way down the road to a repair shop. But one way or another, one minute doesn't really hurt that bad to not have our car rolling down the road. If for one minute we need our gun because some son of a bitch broke into our house to murder us or our children, we're dead in one minute. Done. It is necessary. But if you want to say it's not... Whoever this is, if it's not necessary, neither is your car, neither is your, your you know, whatever else you have. Your computer's not necessary. The rug on your floor is not necessary. Almost nothing in our modern lives is really necessary. So it just doesn't matter. Now, as for the logical reason that you would carry in your home, is if you carry outside of your home and you came home and immediately stopped carrying, Then you would have to actually go through the functionality of removing the weapon from your body when it's already there. Then you might actually have to like, oh crap, honey, I need you to go down to the store and pick up some eggs and milk because we don't have any or whatever reason it is. Now you've left, you've gone to the store, you end up in some situation where you needed your weapon for protection. If you didn't need it for protection, you wouldn't carry it in the first place. And your gun's at home locked in a little safe underneath your bed or something stupid like that. Great. Yeah, excellent. So if you didn't make it a practice to carry constantly, you would be less likely to have the weapon when you needed it, whether you needed it in your home or not, because nothing could ever go wrong in your home. Please play this for the person that says it's not necessary. Please. I want whoever thinks it's not necessary to understand there are people, no matter where you live, I don't care how many gates are around your gated community, that will come do you harm. It might never happen, and it might happen once in a hundred years, but in once in a hundred years where you are, it could be you. Yeah, it's necessary. But let's just take all of Jack's mean facetiousness away in this answer, and let me give you the number one reason that if you are a carrier, you should carry in your home. The weapon on your person is the safest place for it to be. The weapon is safer on your person than it is under your mattress or in your nightstand, isn't it? I'm sure the person that says it's not necessary is worried what happens if somebody gets their hands on it that shouldn't, like little hands that haven't been taught yet not to mess with daddy's gun. Well, if it's on daddy, it ain't going to happen. 
It's the safest place for it to be, except when you're asleep, at which point it should be somewhere you can get to it quickly, and it should be secure. It's much safer in Daddy's waistband than under Daddy's bed, or in Daddy's closet, or in even in Daddy's safe. You get that. Because even safes can be compromised. Even locked boxes can comp be compromised. But if somebody's actually trying to remove a weapon that you carry every day on your body, from your body, I'm thinking you would know about it. It's the safest place for the damn thing to be. So, when people say it's not necessary, generally they're concerned with, is it safe? And the answer is yes. It's the safest place that can be. But before anybody asks you again, Why it's necessary for you to carry a gun. Ask them why it's necessary for them to have the nicest car that they could afford. Ask them why it's necessary for them to have their hair dyed a certain way or to have a certain pair of jeans or why it's necessary to wear a certain brand of shoes or why it's necessary to have a certain type of TV or a video game. I am, and this is why I'm sick of this question. It's not usually asked the way that it was here. Usually it's asked by liberals who want to take away our gun rights. Why is it necessary that you have a gun? Most of what we have in our modern society isn't necessary from a standpoint of will you be alive tomorrow whether you have it or not. It's necessary to me because I've chosen to make a stand. It's necessary to me because it's my property. And if we want to start putting that litmus test to things, well, then there's a whole shit ton of stuff we're not going to have anymore. But again, in all fairness, the reason you should carry at home is, one, because if it's ever necessary for you to use your weapon, it's better to have it on you than have it anywhere else. And number two is because the safest location for your weapon is on your person, because it's in your immediate control. And at no other time is your weapon ever, ever, ever in your immediate control other than when it's on your person. So it's safer and it's more logical. That's why. Let's take another call. Hey, Dad. My name is Dave. Uh, my question is about foliar spray for my citrus, almond, and apple trees. I recently heard your show about hydroponics, and I was wondering if the hydroponic nutrients and additives could be used uh, as a foliar spray for my fruit trees, or do you think I should use some kind of uh, compost tea to help supplement the tree's nutrients instead? Thanks for your time, Jack. Well, Evan Folds is not a member of the expert council, but maybe he should be, um, because he's one of the most knowledgeable human beings to ever come on Survival Podcast. Uh, I would put his knowledge in his area is equal to the knowledge that Stephen Harris has about energy. And that is saying something. Um, and I just immediately thought maybe Evan would be so kind as to answer this question. I asked him to do so, and he did. So I'm going to play for you now. Uh, Evan Fold's answer to this question, and as usual, he is a awesome source of knowledge. Hello, this is Evan with ProgressiveGardens.com and Progress Earth, um, the Vortex Brewer System. I wanted to answer a question submitted by Dave uh, about a citrus and apple trees and foliar sprays with hydroponic nutrients or compost tea. Um, foliar sprays are, are, are fantastic means of uh, nourishing plants, primarily with micronutrients and things that are needed immediately in the foliage versus having to wait through the root. It can also be a more cost-effective means of getting expensive products into plants as opposed to broadcasting them to soil. Specifically, hydroponic nutrients aren't necessarily of benefit in that there's nothing innate in them 
um, that really makes them conducive to a foliar spray. Having said that, pretty much anything that's nutritional to a plant can be used as a foliar spray. It's, it can eat it in, the, in a similar way through the root than it through the leaf than it can through the root. So there's nothing wrong with using hydroponic nutrients, um, but you would have to really identify what your specific issue is. That's primarily where you're coming from with a, a foliar application. Is if you have a, a acute deficiency or a disease outbreak in that in that regard. So if there's a acute deficiency, a hydroponic nutrient may make sense, but it would probably be better to be more targeted towards the specific nutrient you were deficient in. In regards to a disease issue, compost tea is a, f- a fantastic way of approaching it. Many biological fungicides are derived of organisms that come from compost. So as opposed to just spraying a single organism that's going to eat your disease after it expresses itself, compost tea is a fantastic preventative in that if, when you're filling the, the parking lot of the leaf, if you will, with good, good microbes, uh, it won't allow the bad ones to express themselves. Um, so, so compost tea is fantastic as a foliar spray, both from the biological standpoint and from the mineral standpoint of the plant food that's being created by the microbes through the process. So, um, you know, to, to really drill down on it, we can consult with you specifically in regards to deficiencies and approaches, but uh, hopefully that answers the question, and uh, you know, keep them coming. Thanks, Dave. Bye. Yeah, hey, Jack. This is Tom from New England, and I'm calling for a question for Carrie Davis. Um, related to uh, medical skills. Uh, I'm calling in about maintaining and improving my skills specifically. One of my skills of the 13 and 2013 was that I become licensed as a first responder. Problem is I own a business and am active politically and civically. I have two young kids as well. So I'd like to maintain my skills. Now my first thought was to volunteer for an ambulance company um, problem is with my limited time, that's going to be difficult. So I'm wondering if there's anything else that I can do to maintain those skills or improve them uh, with my commitments or for anybody else who's interested in improving on their first aid skills or their medical skills. So thanks a lot. Appreciate the uh, feedback. Thank you. Uh, that's a tough question, and it doesn't have an easy get-out-of-jail-free type uh, answer because, in the end, we all have um, temporal limitations. Let's uh, let's hear Carrie deal with this, and it's it's not again. This is not an easy one to answer. So, Carrie, take it away. Hey, Jack. This is Carrie Davis. I uh, got a response to uh, a voicemail from Tom from New England, <clears throat> dated the fifth of this month. And it's concerning maintaining and improving uh, the medical skills. Tom, you said your your goal for 2013 was to try to get your first responder uh, certification, uh, owning your own business, uh, giving you limited time, family giving you limited time, and then uh, that also kind of coincides with the, uh, the conflict with uh, volunteering for a local ambulance service. Uh, to be quite honest with you, man, um, all that kind of stuff, it's like firearms training. It's such a perishable skill. And the time, the limited time there, trust me, brother, I mean, running my own business and uh, having a wife and four kids and being gone quite a bit, that severely limits my time to get any other kind of firearms training or other medical training in as well. So I, I feel your pain on that one and sympathize with you. Um, there are some other uh, some assets you could probably check online. Uh, maybe the uh, American Red Cross has some uh, information uh, on uh, you know online courses. 
And then there's also uh, one of our courses you could also look into taking. Uh, you live up in the New England area. I do come to Six Hour Academy and teach classes there and also uh, do private classes as well. So uh, if that's something you were interested in, you could always you know, give me a give me an email at Kerry K E R R Y at darkangelmedical.com, and uh, it's a pretty intensive two day course uh, that kind of fills the niche between combat lifesaver self aid buddy care T triple C stuff and EMT basics. So you probably get a little bit more uh, than uh, than you would at first as just a first basic first responder. Um, and, and honestly, that's that's one of the best things I've seen. Also, there's some other publications online that can give you some good information. Uh, Journal of Special Operations Medical uh, Medical Association or Journal of Special Operations Medicine. That's a quarterly publication pr- uh, put out by the Journal of Special Operations Medicine uh, or Special Operations Medical Association. I'm a member of that, and uh, they have an awesome, awesome uh, um, publication there. Uh, it's not free to the public, unfortunately. Uh, if you know anyone uh, that could get you some information on that, uh, it's it's. Uh, if you were interested in joining, uh, it may be it may be something you could look into. It's not it's not super cheap, but the information there is really good. They have some basic information and good advanced information. Um, Man, I, I hate to and I hate to I hate to be the harbinger of bad news, but this just as far as improvement and main, maintenance of skills, it's basically going to be um, uh, depend on your schedule, uh, and that's that's the way it is with me too. It, it's just like I know when Magpul comes and does a class, they're like, "Hey, you want to come shoot?" And, and I, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't, just based on my schedule, and that that's it's extremely frustrating. If you ever have any questions directly, uh, give me a call. Uh, 720-217-3689. I'll do my best to answer them for you. And I know this may not, may not be the best answer, maybe somewhat ambiguous or, or unclear, and I don't intend for it to be. It's just it's very, uh, very difficult to, if you get the training, uh, if you don't have time to get the training to uh, maintain those skills and stay fresh on them. But, uh, you know, maybe find some other, maybe find some first aid classes uh, uh, in the local area once you get certified. Maybe you could even help uh, volunteer to help the instructor out if your time, if your schedule would allow it. But other than that, there's a lot of good online resources um, from American Red Cross and um, and other places. Check out the latest, some of the TCCC, Tactical Combat Casualty Care Guidelines, and that gives you some good information as well. And there's a lot of slideshows available online, actually, uh, PowerPoints that can uh, give you some of the latest and greatest information on that stuff, too. Um, I just, I'm a, I'm a Google king, my wife calls me, but I, I, I do that quite a bit just to if I'm if I'm having a, a clarity question or whatever, and I depend on my resources, I use that quite a bit as well. Uh, again, if you have any questions, shoot me an email, give me a call, and I hope that helps out uh, somewhat. If you and um, I hope to hear from you soon, and uh, stay safe out there. Hi, this is Ryan from North Alabama. I have a question for Ben Falk. My question is. Do you think there's any merit to working with a traditional landscaping company in order to gain experience for a permaculture consulting and installation business? For the background info, I recently earned my design certificate. I eventually want to run a permaculture consulting and installation business. While I realize that traditional landscaping practices aren't the way to go, my thinking is that it would introduce me to the business side of things like client relations, the quote process, maintenance contracts, etc., as well as possibly providing some networking opportunities. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you for your time. 
Uh, that's another really, really interesting question. And I know from some of Ben Falk's experience and background that he's going to have a pretty, uh, pretty great view into this. So, Ben, what say you, man? Hi, Jack and Ryan. It's Ben Falk calling uh, regarding the question about merits of working with a traditional landscaping company to gain skill for um, – work in the permaculture space. And I, I think there definitely is. Um, there's a lot of hard skills that permaculture designers um, rarely know very well. Um, one of those is how to make a detailed grading plan and actually um, showing existing contours versus proposed contours of a grading project. That's a, a basic um, skill um, of, a, of a competent uh, landscape architect and and good landscape designer um, doing those by hand is 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 pretty crucial skill as well as uh, manipulating those contours on the on a computer uh, via CAD programs so that's one skill and also I think a much broader skill is just an, a, a solid understanding and fluency with designing spaces that are comfortable and compelling um, and workable for human beings. Um, permaculture design is, um, in a lot, I think a lot of approaches of most permaculture designers is, is much more scientific than it is artistic. And that's very important to bring to the world of, of landscape planning and design. But any good landscape designer and landscape architect um, knows very well how to uh, design spaces that just work for, um, you know, biometrics for, for, for human, um, scale dimensions, you know, what's comfortable, what's beautiful, what are enjoyable spaces to be in and, and how to connect those spaces. And that's not just, um, how to, um, place elements in, in highly functional, uh, interrelationship, uh, to stack functions, which, which permaculturists, are uh, hopefully, if they're good, good at doing. Um, so that's important to also bring to the world of, of ecological design is the world of, of um, social space and human space design. Then some other skills I think you can learn very well in a, in a business that actually has clients um, in an active way are, are the business sides of things, or, you know, conducting um, agreements with clients and, and delivering um on those agreements and, and the whole business side of it, as well as business management on, on the back end, um, as well as potentially marketing and other, uh, of the uh, other areas of the business skills. Uh, so those are, those are a few of the skills I think you can learn from a traditional background and, um, definitely has a lot of value. I would, uh, I would recommend starting or at least working a bit in that space. I think that's, that's crucial to being a good permaculture designer. I, I would say most of the time, uh, for sure. So thanks a lot and good luck. The only thing I'll add to that is that when I've been to design clinics and design classes, and there's been people there who have had professional training in landscape architecture or design, specifically people with degrees. Their designs are always phenomenal. 
Now, at that point, they've then taken permaculture concepts and thinking and bolted it on to what they're doing, but they have an ability to understand things like skill drawing, uh, fitting things into a design, workability, flow, uh, beautiful presentation to the client that, that generally exceeds that of the person that only has the permaculture background. Um, I'd actually like to see more instruction along those things go into permaculture design training. Uh, I don't think there much does. I think that in most PDCs, they show you some designs, do some designs, and say, now go do it. And in a two-week course, that's likely all that can be done. But I'd almost like to see like a three-week, not a three-week, a one-week, um, here's how to design component go into permaculture. And I don't think there's any need for that to be hands-on. I think that could be done a 100% with uh, a remote course. I'd almost like to see it become a prerequisite to a PDC. Like this is how you this is how you lay out a print. Don't don't worry about sector analysis and zone planning um, during this component because you'll get that in a PDC. But this is how you make a scale drawing. This is how you get one out of something like base map. But this is how you do it when you don't have that. This is this is how you use design tools like a, a, a scale ruler. A, uh, you know, this is how you use all of these tools, a protractor, a triangle, um, like specifically just this is how you would do a design in a general landscape. I, I think there's a place for that. And I, I think that if somebody would put that together, they could actually sell it to permaculture students and say, this would be a great, even if you're, even if the people you're going to go take your PDC would say you don't need it, boy, this would be a great course for you to take. Um, and I think that can be 100% done by a remote course. So video training, things like that, a little bit of uh, feedback from an instructor like, okay, now go to make these three designs. And, and again, I don't think I would worry in that course about what a sector analysis is or a zone analysis is. I think this would just be a hard skills. Here's how you make a print. Here's how you create a design. And here's how even if you are a, a, a complete flunk when it comes to being an artist with just some basic shape tools and some rulers and some things like that, you can make a print look good enough for people to really understand it. Here's how to put color into design, things like that. Um, and then when you go to a permaculture class and you sit down and somebody says, well, here's how you do a zone analysis, here's a sector analysis, and you apply that to your final design, your design will easily incorporate those ideals. And I don't know that that really is directly germane to the question, but I think that it's, it's, it's an important concept that's lacking in permaculture design certification courses. I don't think I've ever seen one where students really get the lesson in the, the drafting component of a design. And I think if you're working with a traditional landscape company that you would gain a lot of that knowledge. So that's my way of tying it back in. We've got one more question, but it's really two. I got two people that just sound very frustrated, and they're they're like the same but different. As I said yesterday, quote from Thomas Chong from uh, Cheech and Chong movie. It's the same but different. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to play both of them, and I'm going to come back and give you my answer. I know this has been a long one, but man, guys, what an incredible show we've had today. I'll just say that before I play this because it's going to be a little depressing, and hopefully I'll give you something to be optimistic about when I answer it because right now, To be honest with you, while I've listened to these two questions, I don't even know what I'm going to say until I listen to them again. Jack, great show. I uh, have a question regarding your 11 
413 episode when you said, what if we all stood and stopped kneeling? I agree, but I'm at a loss as to what to do. I just read an article about them outlawing wood stoves, and in certain places, Portland, I think, uh, for example, you can't even have a wood-burning fireplace. What do you suggest we do? What is the resistance? What is the what is the standing up there? Um, appreciate your answer. Thank you. Bye bye. Hey Jack, this is uh, you from Colorado. Hey, uh, so I just heard some pretty disappointing things that came out of Savage, um, and you know. You're right, Ron Paul's right. It's one party. It really is. You know, it's he's talking about how Christie's going to be running in 2016, and I how he's going to win over the Republicans. And I'm like, y'all don't get it. You know, what I mean. So the question is uh, for you: Do we? And we're not buying into this anymore. But where do you think this is going to head? I mean. Uh, I I just I can't even fathom what what I just heard. I, I the race isn't even here, and they're talking about how Christie's going to be in it, and I just I, I I don't see it. I it's another Romney. It feels like to me it's another joke. It's another McCain. It's just I don't know. It's it's something that I can't even fathom. So I, I'm I'm curious as to what your thoughts are as far as how do we just get this off of our radar and just quit thinking about it. I've given me the news so much, I can't even see straight now. You know, and I, I try to not listen, but just keep coming back to it. So, how do you, how do you deal with it? How do you think we're going to get out of this, if we're going to get out of it? I mean, and there are, are enough people waking up. That's the other question. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Boy, there's a lot there, and you can hear the the frustration and the anguish in both of the callers' voice. Let's let's start out with one of the first things we have to do. We have to we have to start understanding the difference between actual government stupidity and hyped government stupidity. I have looked and looked and looked for anything out of Portland, Oregon, that says you will not be allowed to have a fireplace. I can't find it. What I what I have seen is that Portland, Oregon. And many other states are suing the federal government and asking them to make restrictions on wood-burning fireplaces stronger, so that or, or wood-burning stoves stronger, um, and, and some move to try to just outright banish these things. And you know how far can Portland actually go with this? I don't know, but if it, you know, here's the thing: like, so part of this is understanding how to pick your battles. All right, and, and the reality is that Portland, Oregon, as far as government goes, is batshit crazy. So don't live there. Don't live there. Uh, one more time, don't live in places like this. Walking to freedom is part of your solution. So when I say stand, people take it to mean fight every battle. No, if you're in a military uh, division and you're making a decision about fighting a war and you know that the enemy has a decided advantage in one particular area, you may retreat from that area and set up defenses or offensive movements in a different area because it's to your advantage to do so. And we have to start understanding that. that you know, Fighting about whether or not you can burn a log, if you're living in Portland and it's your problem, leave. I know that might sound blunt, but it's the true answer. 
Part of this is restoring a republic, and a republic is based on freedom of movement, and people need to start understanding that just because it's not what you should have to do doesn't mean it's not what you have to do. There's times when men have to make sacrifices, and frankly, just to be blunt in how spoiled we are as a people today, Moving is nowhere near the sacrifice that some of the people in this nation made in advance so that you would even have the freedom to do that. You know, it's, I don't want to move. Well, maybe somebody before you didn't want to bleed and die in a field. I, I hate to be that blunt, but I, I really do. And then, you know, the other caller, this is the problem. You're still stuck on political solutions. The reason that you are so upset That, you know, Chris Christie's a likely Republican nominee for 2016, and he's probably running against Biden or Clinton. The reason you're upset about that is you still think this matters. So you're, you acknowledge in the beginning, you're right, they're all one party, and then you languish over the fact that they do the same shit. They have the same globalist-minded individuals at the heads of their parties, and it's preordained who the nominee is going to be to a degree. Now, look... There's no guarantee it's going to be Chris Christie. There was a time when everybody said, oh, it's going to be Rudy Giuliani, right? And Ron's right when he talks about how they'll sell Christie to the to the, the American people. But it doesn't mean it's a foregone conclusion. They'll, they'll sell whoever works best at the time for the overall agenda, which is a continuing enslavement of the American people under a plutocracy and a corporatocracy. For those who don't know what a plutocracy, it's ruled by the rich. If you actually think the politicians are really the one in charge, you, you're just not paying attention. So what it, the, the question that I really get out of both of these people is what do we do? How do we stand and not kneel? Step one, pick your battles. Step one, pick your battles. If you want to live free, a free life with as little restrictions as possible, Don't start out with picking a state that doesn't give a shit about your freedom and liberty. And if you're going to do it, damn sure don't pick a city that's like the worst of the state embodied. Like, yeah, Jersey sucks, but like, you know, Hoboken sucks so much more. Trenton sucks so much more than, you know, like a rural place like Bud Lake, which still sucks, but it doesn't suck as much as the epicenter of liberal-minded, big-government idiocy in a state like New Jersey. Yes, Illinois sucks, but if you think Illinois sucks, well, you get into the hind-tit sucker of Chicago, okay? So, first of all, you've got to pick the place for your battle with some intelligence. But then you do, and you don't worry about what these people are doing anymore. They're going to bankrupt the country. Listen, the country is going to be bankrupted. The country, I don't care who we put in office anymore. The country has gone too far down this road. We will be bankrupted. If we made Ron Paul president tomorrow, we would probably still end up in bankruptcy. If we made Ron Paul president and we're able to clone his ass 535 times and turn the Congress over to Ron Paul people we would still probably end up bankrupt. It might not suck as bad when it happened, and we might have a much clearer path out of it, but it's done, right? So what we have to start understanding is that it doesn't make any sense for us to be focusing 
on circles of concern instead of circles of influence, in, in the words of Stephen Covey. That's what we, you need to focus on the things you can influence. So if you're going to be involved in politics, take it to the local level and go somewhere where you already have some traction. Even in a state like Texas, which is pretty solid, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pitch my tent in downtown Austin. I'm not going to pitch my tent in downtown Fort Worth. I'm not going to pitch my tent in downtown Dallas. Get as close as I could and as far away as I could at the same time in an unincorporated area with as little restriction as possible. Can everybody do that? No. But do the best you can with it. And then act. Be. Do. Work. Build. Accept that your government is screwed. Understand that eventually, eventually, they will crash it into the ground. And the more you do now, the louder your voice will be when the opportunity comes. People will not listen to you when these clowns crash the plane into the ground if you're not doing better than they are. You have to plan to be doing much better than the average person when this economy falls apart, when this government falls apart, when the currency gets revalued. You have to plan to be doing better without being rich and wealthy to do better. You have to have clearly demonstrated at that point that your way really is a better way, and then, yes, the others will follow. But they won't if you're sitting right next to them, if you're dealing with the same problems the same way, and just saying, look, now here's our opportunity to rebuild. They'll say, well, what have you done? And you'll say, well, I haven't, but look what we could do. And they'll say, so what? These people are offering me a bowl of porridge today. I'm going to do what they say. Like I've said before, the solution to the problem of collapse is understanding that in every way imaginable, modern society is headed for collapse. We are headed for economic collapse. One way or another, call it a sh I call it a shift. It's probably more accurate. It probably won't look like any of the books that talk about it say, but it'll probably suck really, really bad. We are headed for that type of a collapse. We are headed for an agricultural resources collapse in this country. We cannot keep treating land the way we're doing and continue to feed 300 million people plus other people around the world. We are headed for a resource collapse. We are headed for a collapse with our water resources in many ways. We are damn sure heading for a collapse when people decide they've had enough tyranny and start pushing back against their government. And you're going to have a government on the ropes that's going to be a very dangerous boxer on the ropes. And it's going to do a lot of stupid shit, and it's going to further its own demise. Collapse upon collapse upon collapse, or a better way to use, a better term to use is shift upon shift upon shift is coming. And the solution is to accept that at this point. You can fight it in certain areas to position yourself for the aftermath. When you fight it at the local level and your state asserts its sovereignty or your county says, we're not going to let you do this to our citizens, and you get that done, you haven't actually furthered the battle to prevent collapse. You've created a beachhead of stability for the aftermath of what's going to happen anyway. You have to start seeing it that way. In other words, what I keep saying, and I don't think people really believe I mean it, is we need to begin the rebuilding prior to the collapse. 
That's why I love permaculture. That's what we're doing. That's the transition movement. That's understanding all this stuff is going to happen. You can't stop it. You can hold up a sign. You can bitch and you can yell and you can moan. You can tell your brother who just doesn't understand that it would be better to be a Republican or a Libertarian than a Democrat. And he could even believe you and become one and get baptized as a newborn Libertarian and vote for the LP for the rest of his life. And it doesn't matter. It's all coming down in a big shitstorm anyway. Changing your dad's mind or your brother's mind or your brother-in-law's mind or your buddy's mind at work is a victory for moving forward, but it is not a victory for preventing the inevitable. We are already there. It is already going to happen. There is already more than $17 trillion worth of debt, and just like I told you, by the time we elect another ASCOM president, we will be somewhere in the neighborhood of $21 to $22 trillion in debt. We will have, at that point, an interest payment on debt that's largely unserviceable. Most of the hard costs coded into our government at that point will be um, Non-discretionary spending, meaning we're stuck with it. There's nothing we can do about it. We have to do it. And sooner or later, the only thing that the government will be able to do is reset the value of the currency, which will cause massive gnashing and anguish and, 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 and frothing at the mouth and, and gnashing of teeth, and it is all going to occur. What are you going to do about it now? What are you going to do about it now? The world will not end. A giant chasm will not open up and swallow everybody or, you know, swallow all big government idiots. There will be plenty of people still preaching the virtues of big government after a collapse. But the people with the solutions will have the biggest say in going forward. When society shifts, you will see the rise of the duocracy. So what do you do? Be a doer now. Be a builder now. Build a homestead, build a business, build a community, build a movement, build, 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 build before the collapse. Because this collapse won't be an earthquake. This collapse will be a, a societal collapse, an infrastructure collapse. And what's going to collapse are the very things that got us here and what will remain standing will be the solutions to those problems, even if they're implemented first. Especially if they're implemented first. You want a solution to what's coming? Act. Stand, don't kneel. Choose your battles. Pick your locations wisely. Choose your friends well. And worry more about what you can do tomorrow morning than what somebody 500 or 5,000 miles away is going to do no matter what you do. The days of political solutions are behind us. The day of the political solution at the national level in this country has come and gone. The people of the republic were entrusted with the political solution. It was given to us as a gift by our founders in our founding as a republic. And we have largely, for well over a 100 years, ignored ignored the responsibility of doing so. So much so that that which was given to us has been lost on our own watch. And not just this generation's watch, and not just the teacup generation that's coming behind us, and not just on the prior generation or the generation before that. This has been a slow eroding 
of the willingness of people in this nation to be responsible for what they've been handed and what they've been given and being responsible to govern themselves. They've chosen to not govern themselves, so guess what? Other people have chosen to be your governors. You have watched your nation turn its back on its sovereign responsibility at the individual level, and they have done so for so long that you can't fix it. It's like having a patient come to you who is 89 years old, 450 pounds, at five foot eight, by the way. This had multiple coronary bypasses, and now has cancer of the liver, has cancer of the lungs, has cancer of the stomach, has cancer of the bladder, and cancer of the brain, of all things. Because that's what this country has, is a huge collective case of freaking brain cancer, metaphorically, of course. Who has eaten like crap their whole life, smoking like a chimney their whole life, and gets drunk on pure grain alcohol every day. And says, I'm willing now, I'm willing now to live a healthier, better life. I want to live. What would you tell that person? Doesn't matter what you do now, dude. Doesn't matter what you do now. It's too late. That's the political solution in this country. It's an 89-year-old, overweight, bloated, drug-addicted, alcoholic, slovenly being that you're trying to put life back into. There's only one place for that entity to add up, and that's in the grave. It's time to start working on the next generation of solutions. It's time to start working for tomorrow. Because if you're living in today, at this point, you're already living in the past. Most of the people in this country that really believe that we just got the right people in there. You're living in an America from 1950 that never existed. The America you believe in never existed. Let me back up and say this again so you understand it. Most of the people that believe that this nation currently has a political solution believe in the ideals of a 1950 America that never existed. It was never here. It never was what you think it was. 1950 America was a nation where it was legal to put a sign up that told a person based on the color of their skin they weren't welcome in your establishment or where they had to sit on a bus or that they weren't allowed to use a certain water fountain. 1950 America had a lot of things that were more right than they are today, but it also had a lot of things that were more wrong than we were today. And we as a people were entrusted with not letting that America exist either. This system of economic nonsense and control by corporations is a cancer that started out in stage one long, long ago and is now metastasized and multiplied and you're looking at full-blown stage five cancer of ignorance and stupidity existing in our nation today. Controlled by the wealthy, Laws written by the very corporations that the laws are supposedly supposed to control. And if you think you can fix that at the ballot box, 
you have plumb lost your mind or you have yet to regain it. You've been brainwashed by society. And I think of the words now. There's, there's no man more enslaved than that man who falsely believes himself to be free. America, that is you. That is what you've become. A group of slaves that pay homage to freedom from masters that control you and make sure that all of your actual responsibilities to keep you alive and kicking are provided for you by yourselves and you build your walls around yourself and you apply your own chains. That is who you have become. And those of you that have waken up to that reality have cast off your chains and stopped building your walls and then you look to the very people who are building the walls and chaining themselves up and saying, what do we do? Stop asking them. They have no answers. Seek your answers in yourself. Seek your answers for yourself. Work for tomorrow. Today is already in the past. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Let me show you a better way.